All right, hello, Toll listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success. As sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. Today's guest is Stuart Hameroff, who along with Roger Penrose has a theory of consciousness. What's particularly interesting is that Roger Penrose is a rigorous physicist bordering on mathematician which means even more rigor, and generally speaking, those people tend to stay away from theories of consciousness that aren't simply emergent from material complexity. However, Hameroff and Penrose have a theory that combines general relativity with quantum theory, and it's in fact in this unification that produces consciousness within what are called microtubules, though it doesn't necessarily need to be within there. This is a technical talk, and we didn't even get to half the questions. There's quite a bit of jargon. And that's because I believe that one needs to speak with a certain level of domain-specific language if one is going to make progress. Otherwise, we stay at the jejun level. If you're merely listening to this rather than watching, such as on Spotify or iTunes or you're away from the monitor, there are concomitant visuals in the YouTube video. For those unacquainted, the point of this channel is to interview those who have contributions to a theory of everything, and then for you and us to collectively, via Discord, via the subreddit, come to a greater understanding of the laws that govern us, and God, and free will, and so on. There is a clips channel called Toe Clippings with shorter, shareable segments from these larger interviews. I welcome people to submit theories to me and to each other, but it's quickly becoming overwhelming, so at some point I will host informal chats with audience members on their theories of everything on the Toe Clippings channel since this main channel is heavily dense with information and plenty of preparation plus editing, it would be great to keep it that way. If you'd like to see more conversations such as this, then please consider donating at patreon.com slash or if you're simply interested in the general mission. Once 50 patrons is reached, we'll host a friendly, constructive conversation rather than a critical one with Bernardo Kastrup, Donald Hoffman, and Jonathan Verveke. Enjoy. So Stuart, how was your day? Uh, hi, Kurt. It's great. Uh, I'm in California with my wife, uh, and uh, we're kind of taking it easy today. So I'm happy to talk with you and catch up. Did you perform any daily ritual, any meditation, any special diet? Today, no. Usual. Well, something I noticed about you was you're extremely quick-minded, astute, and and lucid. And then I looked up your age, and you're past 70. I hope I'm not spoiling anything. But I'm curious, how is it that you're able to stay so quick-witted and articulate? Well, I'm still working as an anesthesiologist. I'm on vacation at the moment, but uh, um, I, I stay active. I have a keen uh, intellectual interests, as you know, and uh, love life and savor every moment and uh, just keep going. Were you always like that? 
Probably, yeah. Do you pray? Do you believe in God? Uh, I do, I, in my own way. I uh, My beliefs are kind of personal and in tune with my own personal beliefs, but I was raised in a religious family and got, uh, you know, uh, got that from them. And uh, I'm very grateful to my parents and my family for my upbringing, including including my religious. I kind of rebelled against organized religion, but believe in, uh, in something uh, that organizes the universe, some kind of uh, uh, probably conscious function that organizes the universe. I find that most people who study consciousness have a dislike for institutionalized religion. Yeah. But they like spirituality in some way, shape, yes. or form. Yes. Exactly. Right. So why don't you give the audience a Cliff Notes version of your theory? Okay. Um, well, I got interested in the problem of consciousness when I was in uh, undergrad. Uh, in a, I took a philosophy of mind class. I was a chemistry, physics, math major, pre-med. Uh, it was also the late 60s, and we did things then that people did then, and uh, there was a lot of political turmoil, social unrest, as you might imagine. And uh, I got really interested in this philosophy mind class, uh, but went to medical school, and um, in medical school, none of the particular uh, specialties, uh, I, I liked the brain-mind problem, but neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery uh, didn't appeal to me in terms of lifestyle and stuff to do. Uh, I stumbled into anesthesiology, but while I was still in medical school, I did a, a research elective thinking I might like academics and uh, was in a cancer lab studying cell division, how cells divide, mitosis. And, uh, you know, the chromosomes, the genes are, genes are pulled apart by these uh, structures called mitotic spindles made of microtubules, and that perfectly separates the chromosomes, the genetic material. And uh, everybody else in the lab, I'm pretty sure, got into the genes and went on into genetic engineering and, and all that. But for some reason, I got fixated on the structures that pulled apart the chromosomes. And if they didn't do this delicate dance perfectly, the uh, genetic material would not be perfectly divided and you'd get uh, abnormal mitosis, you'd get maldevelopment, you'd get uh, cancer and so forth. So I got interested in the structures that did the mechanical movement. And at that time, in the early 70s, it was appreciated that they are also in neurons. The neurons were full of them. And their structure was revealed, and they had a lattice structure. And that looked to me something like a computer matrix, because I was trying to figure out how computers work. Computers were new to me anyway back then in the early 70s. So, we had the, so I was interested in consciousness. I looked inside neurons, and there was all these structures that looked like little computers. So I got the idea that these microtubules, as they were called, might be processing information and uh, subserving uh, consciousness at a level below neurons. Because as you know, almost everybody else thinks that the brain is a bunch of, uh, is a computer of neurons, each neuron acting as a simple on-off switch, yes or no, a bit, a one or a zero. And if you get enough complex computation among neurons, you get consciousness emerging in some way. Uh, but yet there were single cell organisms that do very clever things. They can swim around, find food, find a mate, have sex, learn, and so forth. Uh, and uh, they were a single cell. So if a single cell paramecium can do that, for example, I thought it's kind of an insult to a neuron to say it's just a one or a zero, depending on whether it fires or not. And so I, I started, I got interested in these microtubules inside neurons. So, uh, a year, a year later, a couple of years later, when I was looking for a specialty to do in medicine, I, I thought about doing pure research and decided against it. Um, but I stumbled into anesthesiology because the uh, the guy who would become my, my future chairman 
a guy named Bernell Brown, a really brilliant and charismatic uh, character, became a good friend of mine and my mentor, said, if you want to figure out consciousness, figure out how anesthesia works. And two, here's a paper on showing that anesthesia acts by depolymerizing microtubules that you're so fond of. What does depolymerizing mean? It means they fall apart. They disassemble. So there are lattice, microtubules are lattice polymers of individual proteins called tubulin. Each tubulin is just one protein, like a, a peanut-shaped protein. But by entropy, they, they, this is really weird how entropy drives something so uh, elaborately self-organized. They, they self-assemble into these hollow tubes and grow mm -hmm. like, like girders or scaffolding. It's like a, right. A I was building. watching this talk by Anurban. I believe. Hunter yes. Right, right, right. Yes. And they self-assemble and, the, and they grow They grow cells and they make neuronal connections and they do everything uh, in, in terms of cell movement, cell organization. So uh, uh, it, so if you give enough anesthesia, and it turns out it takes about five times as much anesthesia to cause them to disassemble, to, to depolymerize into their, to go from these elaborate uh, polymers, structures, into the individual individual proteins, uh, enough anesthesia will do that. Well, that's about five times the anesthesia you need to cause them to cause unconsciousness. So fortunately, we don't uh, cause our microtubules to fall apart. We just affect them in some more subtle way, fortunately, although too much anesthesia can do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, Brunel, uh, uh, my future chairman said, uh, you can figure out consciousness. It has something to do with microtubules. It's a lot of fun and it's pretty good money. So that was a long time ago and I went in anesthesia and here I am 46 years later, still doing it clinically and still enjoying it. And the, the research has, you know, given me an opportunity to kind of uh, go where I want to go. Then you started collaborating with Penrose and I'm curious about the practical aspects of that. We can talk about it later, but I'm super curious to know what is it like to collaborate with Penrose? How do you do it? Do you use a whiteboard? What's an example of a problem that you've tackled together recently, but we'll talk about this. So you encountered Penrose. I should say, before I get to Roger, uh, I should say that I spent about uh, 20 years working on microtubules as classical information processing devices, going around to artificial intelligence meetings, neural net meetings, neuroscience meetings, saying, hey, to understand the brain, you can't just think of the neuron as a one, one or a zero. You got to go into the uh, deeper level and you get into all this additional information. So for example, the you know, AI singularity people were saying, well, you have 10 to the 11th neurons are switching at about 1,000 per hertz, about 100 or 1,000 synapses, 100 hertz, give you about 10 to the 16th operations per second. And Kurzweil and the singularity were saying, well, when we get to 10 to the 16th, we'll have brain equivalents and consciousness. But I said, well, no, if you have the microtubule subunits, about a billion of them or uh, uh, per neuron switching at uh, the uh, 10 megahertz, you get 10 to the 16th operations per second per every neuron. So uh, the goalpost for AI was, I was pushing it way down, down the field. And uh, they didn't like that. You know, they said, go away, you bother us. You know, what do you know? Because they wanted the singularity to happen in their lifetime? Exactly. You know, give them another, you know, a couple billion and they'll have a brain equivalence in, you know, in, in another few years. So I thought that was BS. Um, and I thought their, their approach to the brain was an insult to the brain, an insult to neurons. And I was going around uh, doing my thing, being a pest. Um, and then one day somebody said, asked me a very good question. He said, um, let's say you're right, wise guy, wise ass, and mm -hmm. all this is going on. How does that explain consciousness? How does, how does that explain 
you know, love, joy, feelings, pinkness, uh, envy, taste, you know, uh, what later became known as the hard problem by, uh, according to David Chalmers. And I was, I was a bit stunned. I had to admit they were right. I really didn't know. And um, I had enjoyed being a pest, but I didn't really have a solution other than we had to look deeper. And the same person suggested I read this book by Roger Penrose called The Emperor's New Mind. And I had vaguely heard of Penrose, but I didn't really know his work. This was, well, he wrote the book in 89. And I think I read it in 91 um, mm-hmm. or so. And uh, it was uh, quite a tour de force, as you may know. It, it covered, the main, the main point was, it started off with, through Gödel's theorem, arguing that um, consciousness requires something other than computation. Other than what we think of as classical computation? Or just other than computation? Even quantum computation, that okay. there had to be something else. Because uh, he, Gödel's theorem, uh, uh, to prove a theorem in mathematics, uh, you have to be outside the computational system. So we extrapolated that to say that uh, to, uh, for understanding, for us to know, any, to know something, to know anything, we need something outside of the computational system of the brain, basically the neurons firing and not firing. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't follow all, it, it got into the weeds in terms of philosophy and mathematics that kind of lost me, but intuitively uh, it was, I, I felt he was onto something and he was at least questioning and had the same gut feelings that I did that, that there was something more to it than that. And, uh, but his answer, you know, what that something was, what the missing ingredient was, got into quantum physics and a self collapse of the wave function and his own theory of the measurement problem. And in quantum mechanics, as you as you may know, you can have superpositions of multiple coexisting possibilities. Things can be in two states or places at the same time. And yet when you measure or observe them, they become one or the other. So the very act of measurement, or some people thought the very act of conscious observation seemed to cause collapse of the wave function. Mm-hmm. And the other idea is that each possibility coexists and continues and forms its own universe or that decoherence does it, or the bone theory, or this or that. Uh, and uh, they all have their flaws, and they all have their appeals. Uh, but Rogers was that, well, the first thing he did that was really kind of mind-blowing, and still is after all these years, is that he explained superposition, uh, which nobody else has att- even attempted to do, as far as I can tell. So the question is, how can something be in two places at the same time? How can it be here and here, the same thing, in two different places? And he, he, he solved that by, by resorting to general relativity, by saying that, uh, uh, as, as you know, for very large objects like the sun, there's curvature of space-time. This goes back to Einstein's uh, general relativity. And so uh, Einstein had predicted that a star behind the sun could be visible in an eclipse because the space-time curvature would bend the, bend the light around the space-time curvature and we would see it even though we knew it was behind the star. And in 1919, Eddington uh, went to the top of a mountain during an eclipse and proved Einstein right that there was these, these big curvature in space-time and we could see these stars behind the sun in an eclipse. So um, basically Einstein equated uh, mass with curvature in space-time geometry for large things. Roger applied that to small things and said a small thing like a quantum particle, a proton, an electron or some, something at the quantum level uh, has, a, has a very tiny curvature. And so if, if it's over here, there's a curvature going this way. If it's over here, there's a curvature going this way. So it being in two places at once was actually two separate curvatures 
a separation in space-time. So the, the fundamental level of the universe that he called space-time geometry and which he cleverly portrayed as these two-dimensional sheets could separate. And uh, you could imagine that if they continue to separate, each would have its own universe and you'd have multiple worlds. But he said these separations were unstable and after a time T would, would self-collapse to one or the other. And, and T was, was inversely related to the amount of separation. So a very large separation would self-collapse quickly and a small one would take a long time. And, and here was the kicker. And when that collapse occurred to one or the other, there was a moment of consciousness that was created or occurred or emitted, depending on how you want to describe it. So this was the opposite of the idea that consciousness causes collapse. In Roger's view, collapse occurred spontaneously due to this property of, of the universe and created consciousness, caused consciousness, almost like a quantum of consciousness, a, a quantum. Event. I see. And, um, and so he, he turned the, the so-called Copenhagen interpretation and consciousness causes collapse around and said collapse occurs spontaneously and causes consciousness. And he did it with these clever drawings and not a whole lot, you know, there, there's plenty of math and equations that I didn't follow, but I got, I got the gist because he's more uh, creative and well, he's more expressive in terms of uh, illustrations and, and his clever cartoon. Mm -hmm. He's extremely visual. Yes, yes, and, and artistic. And, uh, you know, he, he's also involved with MC Escher, and, and, and that's kind of a whole sideline. But, but um, you know, I was able to, to grok what he was saying intuitively. And uh, so he was saying at the end that, well, you, there needed to be some kind of quantum computer in the brain that would self-collapse uh, by, by this threshold, but that neurons firing or firing were, were too big. So he already knew that neurons were too big, but he didn't have a candidate for a quantum computer. And uh, so reading this after spending 20 years uh, working on microtubules at a smaller level, and I knew a little bit about quantum because there had been a guy named Froelich, Herbert Froelich in the 60s and 70s, hmm. who claimed that there was quantum coherence in, in geometric la biological lattices uh, that were in a, in a geometric, mm -hmm. uh, constrained in geometric uh, lattice geometry pumped by, by heat and in a common voltage. So the heat, which normally would destroy quantum events, was actually pumping it more like a laser than, than a, a, another kind of quantum, quantum state. And so I knew a little bit about, about Froelich and, uh, and, and, um, and Froelich, I had met with Froelich and uh, he liked the idea of microtubules being these Froelich um, oscillators, Froelich coherent devices. Is he still alive? No, he died in 1991. He died a long time ago, actually. I see, I see. We were going to have a conference for him. Uh, we had arranged a NATO advanced workshop to bring in a lot of people talking about his, his theory. But unfortunately, he died uh, a, a couple of months before the conference, we had, mm. which we had anyway. It was a great conference. But, um, that, uh, but he died in, uh, I think it was 91. But, I, but his idea... He had something was, called frolic resonances, right? Which frolic resonance, what... frolic coherence. They just came out actually in FizRev A, uh, my wife just gave me the reference, uh, uh, a new paper by uh, a guy, uh, Aristide Dogaryu at University of Central Florida about frolic coherence. And it's, it's a brand new treatment and it's very pro-frolic. Pro and actually, I know uh, Aristide, actually we're working together on, on another project. So yeah, frolic coherence uh, actually suffices for the kind of quantum state that, that uh, Roger needed if you had the right uh, structure. And I, I thought it applied to microtubules. So anyway, I wrote to, uh, to Roger and uh, when I, after I read, read his book 
and and said that I really enjoyed it and uh, thought that uh, microtubules, which I described in the letter, might be the quantum computer inside the brain that he needed. And, uh, and that I, by the way, was going to be in England for a meeting in a, a couple months hence and be happy to discuss it with him. And I was uh, thrilled and delighted to get a, uh, a letter, the old fashioned kind in the mail. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, yes, please, I'm happy to meet you. Uh, come meet me at the uh, uh, Mathematical Institute at Oxford in such and such a day and time. And so I did. And uh, he actually, uh, I think he met me at the train station and we walked over and uh, sat in his office for several hours, actually. And uh, I did almost all the talking. He just asked me a few questions about microtubules. And I brought a book that I had, I had uh, written about microtubules and several articles. And uh, went, we went through all the illustrations. What sorts of questions did he ask you? He said, the first, the first thing he asked me was, are these things real or biological or, or, math, or, or computer simulations? I said, oh, they're definitely real. They're in all, they're in all living cells, make up mitosis. And I showed him lots of pictures. And, uh, and so he was particularly interested in the, in the geometry of the uh, A lattice. Now, microtubules can form in two different types of lattices, the A lattice or the B lattice. And the A lattice has a Fibonacci geometry. And Roger is at heart a ge geometrist or geometry. Mm -hmm. And uh, Fibonacci, it, you have these spiral helical, helical windings of the tubulants. And if you, go, if you follow one pathway, they repeats every three, every three tubulants, another every five, and another every eight, and then 13 and 21, the Fibonacci series. So the, in the A lattice, the, the Fibonacci geometry was, was intrinsic to the lattice. And he said, if, that's, if A lattice could be, could be a quantum device just because of the Jan Teller effect and, and so forth. And uh, uh, I also was looking deeper inside each tubulin to the pi, pi resonance aromatic amino acids because I knew that's where anesthetics act and, uh, and so forth. So anyway, he liked the idea. And uh, although um, uh, I didn't think at the time, going back to the meeting in Oxford, I didn't know if anything would come of it. Although he did mention that he was going to a conference at uh, Cambridge with Dan Dennett and Pat Churchland, two uh, philosophers of mind, uh, big names, and uh, that, uh, you know, it was going to be about consciousness. And I thought, gee, that'd be very fun to go to, but I was going to a different conference, a neuro-led conference somewhere else. So we, he thanked me, we said goodbye, and I said, well, that was cool. I got to meet Roger Penrose, and I didn't mm -hmm. think anything would come of it. And uh, two weeks later, I was back in London, heading back to the States, and had dinner with a friend, and he said, hey, guess what? Uh, my friend went to this meeting in Cambridge and Roger Penrose was talking about you and your damn microtubules. Oh, great. And uh, I was thrilled. I was just tickled to death. So um, I said, wow, that's even better. And then a few months later, I got invited to a meeting uh, that Roger had arranged to get me invited to. It was obvious at a, in Sweden, a, a very limited, uh, basically speakers only meeting at, north of the Arctic Circle. And in, in the Midnight Sun, which was uh, Dan Dennett was there and uh, Petra Storig and uh, a few other people and um, Roger and his wife, Vanessa. And uh, we were there for about five days. And, uh, we, you know, the meetings were during the day, but with no no darkness, we just stayed up and talked and went skiing at night and walked and played ping pong and did all kinds of with like no darkness. Pardon me. You said with no darkness. It was above the polar circle in Sweden during the midnight sun. It was like ah, in okay, July okay. or August, uh, 
way, way north. So uh, mid, no, uh, you know, midnight sun. And we actually went skiing at night uh, on, on a, a place on the, I think it was the uh, Norwegian Swedish border. And um, it, so it was a lot of fun. And um, I got to know him a little bit. And at that meeting, I invited him to a conference that I was, or I was organizing the first Tucson conference, the science of consciousness in Tucson. And it was the first interdisciplinary conference. And I invited him and uh, bribed him with a trip to the Grand Canyon. And uh, not that I needed to bribe him, but he, he was happy to, to go. And so he was at the first conference, which we held in 1994, the science of, Con or it was called then Tortoise Science of Consciousness. And later we, we changed it to the science of consciousness. So we've been doing that every year, either in Tucson or elsewhere since 94. So he was the first one. He's been back to probably five or six of them. Was it the um, first one that 28 year old David Chalmers was there and you went on a hike? Yeah, David Chalmers and his famous talk. Yes. Uh, I, so let me tell you, since you mentioned it, I'll, I'll tell you the story about that. So I was the, I was the main organizer. I got uh, Al Kasniak, my, my friend for psychology and Alex, Al Scott for mathematics to organize it. And uh, the Internet had just happened. So we had email. Um, but most of the correspondence was by fax and this and that. And um, uh, the idea at the time was to have the first day on philosophy, the second day on neuroscience, the third day on cognitive science, the fourth day on math and physics and biology, and the fifth day on phenomenal experience, which in retrospect was a huge mistake because what you really want to do is integrate, you know, different, different approaches on a given yeah, topic. I see, I see. But that's the way, that's the way uh, you know, out of naivety, we set it up. So the first morning was philosophy and the first two speakers were well-known philosophers who got up and, and uh, literally read their talks, their papers with no slides. And that's, a, that's what philosophers did back then. Some of them still do, but they've come a long way. And, um, and, and after the first two talks, everybody in the audience is, they're going to sleep. <laughs> like totally, mm -hmm. you know, the, inter the philosophers dug it, but everybody else was like, what the hell? But then the, the third talk was, was Chalmers and he was an unknown postdoc who had kind of lobbied me by email to give a plenary talk. Every, it was either plenary or posters. And he said, I don't want to give a poster. And his, his abstract was about the hard problem versus the easy problems and problems. So I said, okay, what the heck? So he, he was the unknown third speaker. And so he got up and uh, woke everybody up out of their stupor uh, because he gave a great talk, exciting talk. He, you know, was hit, he had hair down at his waist and strutted back and forth with an Australian accent, talk, you know, kind of looked like Mick Jagger, prancing back and forth saying, yeah, memory, attention, all this, they're difficult, but they're relatively easy compared to why we have conscious experience, why we have qualia. So he just went off on the hard problem. And people- Was that the first time he introduced it publicly? Yes, yes. And uh, so after, after his talk was the coffee break and I went around like a, a playwright on Broadway, you know, listening in and people go, oh, the hard problem, the hard problem, that's why we're here. And he really galvanized the movement. So from that point on, I think there was a, a kind of a unified field of consciousness studies uh, from that, that talk on. And we became good friends afterwards. And he, uh, Dave had uh, tagged along to the Grand Canyon with Roger and a bunch of other people. And, um, you know, we've been friends ever since. How has your theory of consciousness been modified by Penrose? Well, my theory was just a more com computational, some would say ad nauseum, you know, more, more computation at a deeper level. So it was, it was hierarchical 
and it was at a molecular level, but it didn't, it didn't utilize the quantum. I knew about Froelich, but I didn't really, and I said, yeah, and that gives you unified coherence, which consciousness had, but uh, it wasn't quantified in any way. So Roger, uh, uh, you know, when we, uh, uh, when we met and he said, you know, we can kind of put this together in a theory. And uh, he said, yeah, well, uh, so he handed me uh, an, an equ- actually a couple, couple weeks afterwards, or maybe a month later, we met up again in, in Denmark, uh, a long story, but I had a couple weeks off and I took my son and we, we hung out in, in Denmark where I had done my, my sabbatical where Roger and Vanessa also hung out because strange story, their dentist was there from years ago. They used to go there and see their dentist and hang out in in Denmark and uh, there was a conference and I got Roger invited to the conference. So we stayed at a house together on Lake Lumbee and, uh, and d- began to develop a theory. And he would give me kind of an assignment. And uh, I, you know, I felt like a student, which I was really in terms of the physics and math. And I, you know, stay up late and do this algebra basically and come back with an answer. He said, okay, so now we have to do this and that. What was an example of one of those exercises? Was it related to T equals H bar over E and calculating what Yeah, it was almost all related to to that. So Roger had given me that equation. Going back to the to when he was in Tucson for the uh, for the conference, I said, "Well, how do we quantify that?" And he said, "Well, we have to we have to put the uh, we have to put microtubules into this equation. Uh, T equals H, uh, H bar over E sub G." And uh, I said, okay, well, how do we do that? I, I knew that T was the time at which collapse would occur. And I thought that we would have to relate that some way to something in the brain, like 40 Hertz oscillations. Back then, gamma synchrony, 40 Hertz oscillations was the big thing. So uh, when you had coherent 40 Hertz EEG, you had consciousness. That's, that's... And regarding these oscillations, is it just that the neurons are firing at the same time, 40,000 times a second? No, this is 40 Hertz, just 40 times a second. But uh-huh, it's not firing. Uh-huh. It's not firing. Actually, that's that's one of the uh, that's one of the problems. People uh, say that. But neurons. If you take one neuron, it's integrate and fire. It's the basic Hodgkin-Huxley neuron. Mm-hmm. So you have the dendrites and soma that receive inputs from the synapses, and and the story goes that strictly by membrane potentials, uh, these thresholds are integrated. Uh, these potentials are integrated to a threshold at what was called the axon hillock, where the axon begins, or now it's called the axon initiation segment. And if, if the threshold is met, there'll be a firing, and the axon would depo- depolarize, and uh, you get the signal down to the next synapse, whatever that may be. And uh, because it was an all or none, if it fired, it fired, that was considered the, the, the binary, the bit, the mm-hmm. fundamental unit of firing. But actually, EEG comes mostly from local field potentials, which come from the dendrites in the soma, from the integration phase, from the integrate and fire in the Hodgkin-Huxley, not, not the firing. But it's more convenient for AI and for neuroscientists to consider bits, to consider firings to be the bits. It fits better with the computer uh, analogy. And, uh, and so people say that. In fact, Christoph Koch and Crick and Koch, Francis Crick and Christoph Koch back then, in, in 90 actually came out with the idea that 40 Hertz was the, was the neural correlate of consciousness. But they were, they were also uh, committed to the idea that spikes firings were the, were the currency of consciousness. So when it was realized that, uh, that it was, um, that, that firings, that EEG came from the local field potentials on the dendritic side uh, from integration, not the firings, they dropped 40 Hertz. They said, well, it can't be. In other words, they had to choose between firings 
and 40 hertz as the neural coral of consciousness. And they went with firings and spikes and dropped the 40 hertz. I think that was a big mistake. But in any case, it was, it was 40 hertz. But so we were, we were thinking, well, we had to maintain the quantum coherent state for 25 milliseconds to get the 40 hertz 40 times a second. And in retrospect, that was a mistake on our part because um, that's way too long for a quantum state. We thought, well, you could do it. You know, nature figured it out and so forth. But it was really, uh, uh, you don't need that, it turns out. Um, to make a long, long well, I'll, co I'll come back to that point. But, but going back to, the, uh, to quantifying this by uh, T equals uh, H bar over E sub G or E sub G equals H bar over T, the same thing, to relate the time to the E sub G. So what is the E sub G? So E sub G is the amount of mass in superposition, the amount of mass separated from itself. And when that meet, reaches a threshold at, at a time T, or if you can sustain that till time T, you'll have a moment of consciousness. The amount of mass of what? Well, of anything, but in this case of microtubules, of, micro, of, of tubulin. And, uh, and that's another good question. So uh, if you start with, that, with, with a protein, it's got all these atoms and rings and electrons and protons and this and that. So, but all the mass is in the nuclei. You know, the electrons... So basically the, the electrons uh, uh, have all the, the uh, cool electron dipole oscillations and quantum stuff that anesthesia comes in and blocks and that causes loss of consciousness. But if you just look at the electrons, the mass was too low to get a significant E sub G. So you have to displace the nuclei to get sufficient E sub G. The, the electrons what a, th a, a thousandth the, uh, the, the, um, the mass of, of, a, of a nucleus, for example. So we said, okay, we got to deal with the nuclei, but then the nuclei, or, okay, we have to deal with the superposition of a protein. So Roger gave me this assignment. He said, you can look at it three ways. You can look at the protein being separated from itself partially by, let's say, 10% of its mass. So 10% uh, it, it, is just an example right now, or he... Well, that's what we use the calculation. Okay. Because we're, initially we're thinking of a conformational change, open and closed, open and closed. And what open. you're doing right now with your hands, is that the tubulin? Flexing, yes. Okay. We thought there had to be a, a conformational change. It turns out you don't need that, but that was the original thought. And the difference in the flex was about 10%. So we calculated the, the E sub G uh, of a protein separated from itself by 10% of its diameter. And he said, okay, you do it that way. And he gave me this, this formula, these formulas, basically algebra, which I was able to do. And uh, he said, but we also have to do it at the level of the nucleus, uh, take the atomic nucleus of each atom. Uh, so you have an electron out here, but the nucleus is here. And the nucleus can be separated from itself by its diameter. So instead of being one sphere, it'd be two spheres, set literally next to each other. You have complete separation. So that gives a different, different type of equation than, than mm. uh, partial separation. So that was two. So it was the, the protein by 10% partial separation. The, the, all those nuclei within the protein, 110,000 uh, atomic weight, separated by their diameter. And the third way was going even smaller to the protons and neutrons, the nucleons separated from themselves. So he gave me the equations and, uh, and I spent some time you know, doing the calculations and came up with the result that separation of the level of the atomic nuclei was the dominant effect gave you the highest energy and, and would occur before the others so we knew so uh, we knew how to calculate for the superposition and then you just multiply that by the number of nuclei 
and we get the the uh, the E sub G for a tubulin protein. Yeah, when you're talking about the atomic nuclei, is that okay? The proteins are made up of well, mostly carbon. We use carbon. You know, it's mostly carbon carbon chemistry, uh, but you know, there's phosphorus, there's oxygen, there's other stuff. But but uh, basically, we we use we calculate it based on carbon because the vast majority of the nuclei are carbon. Why do you want the energy to be high? Because T equals H bar over E. So a high E would make a lower T. And don't you want the T to last for quite some time? You do, but you got to go with, you know, with what nature gives you. And, and the, 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 the high energy is going to be the dominant effect. It's going to happen first. So that's going to trigger the collapse before the other effects. You know, if you avoided that, it might collapse from the, the separation of the whole protein or separation of the nucleons. But the separation of the nuclei is going to happen first. And, and, and that's going to, that's what's going to, you know, rule the, the, what's going on. So you had to okay. deal with that. So that was the first thing we learned. So the next question was, okay, let's say that's right. Uh, how many, uh, how many, um, how many tubulins, how many microtubules uh, would you need to have a uh, superposition for T? So what would the E sub G a number of tubulins be to have a T equal 25 milliseconds? which mm -hmm, is what we mm -hmm. thought we needed. And it turns out it's a pretty small number. It's only like, I forget, 20, 20 neurons worth. If all the neurons in one microtubule, uh, if, all the, if all the microtubules in one neuron were in superposition, you would only need, and, and because T is a long time. So it's a trade-off. It's a long time. So uh, you don't need very much E sub G, but you have to avoid decoherence for a long time. But we weren't considering that yet. We're putting that aside. So for 25 milliseconds, you only needed a few, uh, like 20 neurons worth. So we thought, well, maybe only a fraction of the tubulins are involved, but that seemed kind of, that seemed kind of odd. Um, later, we realized, actually, and several people suggested this to us, that, you know, you don't really need these, the quantum state to last 25 milliseconds to have 25 millisecond events in the brain. And much later, we came around to the, to the idea that the the quantum superpositions involve much more of the brain, much more tubulin for a much shorter time. So because it's inversely related. So um, basically, for example, if, um, if you say that there are uh, uh, 10 to the 10th, uh, so there's about 10 to the 9th to 10 to the 8th tubulins per neuron. And if, if, uh, if you have the, uh, the T not be 25 milliseconds, but be say 10 megahertz, a 10th of a millionth of a second, mm -hmm. then you need a much larger amount of tubulin, much larger number of microtubules, much larger proportion of the brain. It's still small. So for example, for 10 megahertz, for oscillation, for these quantum events to be happening 10 million times a second, you need about 10 to the minus fifth of the total tubulins in the brain, which was uh, billions and, uh, uh, well, I forget, millions and uh, millions of neurons. I have to go back and look it up, but it's, it's a much more reasonable number than, than just 20. If I understand what you're saying is that we need, you know how some people say we only use 1% of the brain, what you're suggesting well, that's is probably well. true actually for consciousness, but mm -hmm. it's not the same 1%. Yes, you know, yes, consciousness yes, yes. can be here and then it's here. It actually yeah. can quite literally move around the brain. Right. So you may use only 1% at one time, but over your lifetime or even maybe a day, you're using most of it, if not all of it. Right. And if you were to use more, that's 
well, if you were to use 100%, that's categorized as a seizure, and it's not actually salutary. Well, seizures are bad, and seizures are when all the, the spikes, the firings, are coordinated, and that's not conscious. So that's, that's, a, that's a pathology. That's, that's when the, all the neurons are firing. It's unclear uh -huh. what's actually happening on the integration side. Uh, I see, but, I see. Yeah, but, but that's, that's not really the same thing. But, but basically, we did make a relationship between the, between the fraction of the brain, the number of tubulins involved, the, the frequency and the intensity of experience. And we base that on, on a couple of things extrapolated. For, for example, uh, meditators, uh, trained meditators have really high EEG compared to uh, normal people. And, uh, and uh, as a baseline or when they're meditating? As a baseline and when they meditate, both. And this was done in uh, Rick, uh, Richard Davidson's lab, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And the Dalai Lama sent his best meditators over and they studied him with EEG. And at baseline, uh, they're, I forget the frequency, the baseline, they were much higher. And when they meditated, they were like off the charts. As an aside, what does he use to qualify them as, a, as the best meditators? That was whoever. That's his, his, his choice. Okay, I got it. I got it. I don't know. We'll give him, we'll give him that. He's, he should know. Yeah. So, uh, so based on that, EEG gets, gets higher. And uh, there are some other inklings of that. You know, if, if you're in a car accident and the car is spinning, uh, supposedly the external world slows down. Everything slows down. And that could be because you're having more conscious moments per second than you were before the accident occurred. And great athletes like Michael Jordan said when he's playing well, it's because the other team is in slow motion. And so uh, – I recall, I recall you saying this. I spoke to Anil Seth. I'm sure you've heard of him. Yes, I know Neil. Yeah, I asked him about this, about the time slowing effects, and if it is indeed a real effect or if it's just your perception of time slows down. And he said, what's been done is you measure people on bungee jumps and you show them perhaps a clock and they're not able to recall milliseconds at a higher rate than people who are not under the bungee yeah, jump? Yeah, you know, I, I know that study. That's David Eagleman's study. And it's it was kind of a, it was like, a, I don't know. I'm not sure I believe it. I, okay. I don't think okay. so. So just a few minor studies that haven't decisively right. made the case. Okay, continue. We don't really know. But but it seems to me that consciousness, the, the, the intensity of experience is related to the frequency of the events that you're having. So if you're, if you're excited... Uh, if you're in an altered state, if you're doing something you really love, uh, you're having more conscious moments per second, if you can measure it. But to yeah. you, uh, the external world slows down. Mm -hmm. And when you're on psychedelics, it seems like the brain isn't firing as much or using as many neurons. Is that correct? Uh, that's a very good question. Yeah. So that's a study of uh, uh, Robin Carhart Harris from 2012. And uh, he presented that at the Tucson conference and uh, amazing study. Um, what they did was they, they put people in an MRI scanner. They also did EEG. Uh, so it works mm, for EEG okay. and for MRI. But in the, in the MRI scanner and in the EEG, they then gave them intravenous psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms. And then later, you know, they, they had them uh, report what they were experiencing at the time. They didn't ask them at the time because, um, and later they reported their experience and they were all basically having a psychedelic experience. They're basically all tripping at the time. And in the scanner, they kind of, I think they expected their, their brains to kind of light up like pinball machines. 
but they didn't. Their brains looked cold and dark, like they were unconscious, almost comatose. And in the EEG, they, they expected, I'm not sure what they expected, but what they got was almost flatline EEG. And mm-hmm. it was, it was paradoxical. And, uh, um, those debate, those results are still being debated. What I think, and Robin didn't like this idea and, uh, a lot of people don't, but, uh, what I thought was that under those circumstances, um, consciousness is, has gone into the microtubule quantum states almost completely. And the membranes which perform cognition are quiet, are, are quiet, silent. You don't need uh, you don't need uh, energy um, for the membranes. You don't have to. Well, you need what I'm. As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find: Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger, and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mmm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers trial pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H. L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. Let me back up. What the brain needs energy for is to maintain uh, memory potentials. The quantum, the quantum microtubule stuff is very low energy. You don't need much energy. So um, if you're tripping and you don't have to do anything cognitive, you don't have to drive a car, you don't have to talk to anybody, you're just laying there in your own mind your membranes can be can be can be quiet. Consciousness has gone to a deeper level into the quantum state, so you mm-hmm. don't require energy for membrane membrane potentials for firing. And uh, you know, by the same token, you you wouldn't want somebody in that condition driving you home. Their cognition wouldn't be very good if they're if they're deep into a quantum consciousness state. So that was my explanation for why people who are tripping have a low uh, what their brains appear to be silent and dormant and their EEG is flat. It's because everything's gone to a deeper level. And if you get to that level, you find much, much faster and more active activity at the quantum level. But at the classical level, things are on hold. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. 
The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Okay, so let me make a layman rudimentary analogy. Let's imagine that what the EEG is measuring is the rate at which or the speed at which you're moving about or a group of people are moving about in a room. Let's say this. And they measure it at like five kilometers per hour. They're walking. But what you're saying is when you're under an an altered state of consciousness, it's like you're going into a deeper room, let's say the basement. And now you're moving rapidly, but the EEG is showing a small amount because it's only measuring what's in this room. Is that somewhat correct? Yeah, you you kind of go into the basement. You go into the, uh, the underground where it's all quantum and the energy is very, very low. And you've you've dissociated from what's happening at the membrane. You've you've gone you've gone deep uh, into the. I like to call it the quantum underground. It's the actual decoherence-free subspace where quantum stuff stuff is happening in biology. But the membranes are on vacation. The membranes uh, don't have to depolarize. You don't have to trigger firings. You're not doing anything actively other than thinking, other than being conscious. Your body, you you're not moving anything. You're not uh, doing performing any cognitive functions. Okay. And by the way, um, I'm going to digress a little bit, but in some recent work I've been doing with Alison Watry at uh, UCSD, who studies these cerebral organoids, we're trying to design experiments to see if cerebral organoids can be conscious. We've kind of come to the conclusion that, uh, that there's cognition and there's consciousness. Cognition is you know, stuff that we do uh, that could be conscious or not conscious. Driving, for example, walking. Sometimes you're walking and, or I'm walking, my mind's wandering, I'm somewhere else. Uh, I'm technically paying attention, but uh, to the sidewalk and whatnot, but I'm not that conscious of it. Then all of a sudden something happens. I see somebody or a horn honks and then my consciousness returns to my cognition. So cognition can be either conscious or non-conscious. So we're thinking that we're, the way we're expressing now is that consciousness is supervening on cognition and kind of takes over cognition and when, when it needs to. So you can be on autopilot most of the time, driving or walking or doing whatever without consciousness. And then mm, suddenly you this, need it again, and it shows is, up and supervenes on cognition. Is this the opposite of the prevailing view that cognition supervenes on consciousness rather than the other way around? If that's the prevailing view, yes, it would be. Is that what okay. the prevailing view is? No, I'm, well, I'm asking you, you know much more. I don't actually, I've never, uh, I, I've heard the term supervenient. It, it, it's a, it's a term in philosophy. And, mm-hmm. But I, I always thought it applied to consciousness of supervening and kind of taking over cognition. Mm-hmm. It could go the other way around if, you know, but no, I, I think consciousness supervenes on cognition. And in fact, we can't measure consciousness in the brain or in organoids or in anything. But what we might be able to measure is the effect of consciousness on cognition because cognition can be computable. So go back to Roger, Roger's point about uh, uh, consciousness being non-computable. Uh, well, uh, 
if you had something you could observe in the brain that was computable and then consciousness came in, you would, you would see deviation from computable behavior in Hodgkin-Huxley neurons. And that's exactly what we're trying to do in this study we're proposing, that is to look for, it, for, it, for the shadow of consciousness, to look for the shadow consciousness casts on cognition, deviation from computable behavior in neurons, in Hodgkin-Huxley neurons, for example, because of consciousness, and to see if that goes away with anesthesia. So anesthesia should make you more computable, uh, more uh, automatic, more uh, autopilot-like. And we do see that type of behavior under anesthesia without consciousness. Mm. So that's a way of, of looking at consciousness is by looking at the effect it has on cognition. As another aside, is there a way of using anesthesia to make a truth serum? You know, uh, pentothal was used for that, or brevetal, back in the old days. And it, it, it just supposedly, just the right amount, you could, you could kind of... Uh, uh, inhibit the dis you can kind of inhibit what is normally uh, uh, inhibitory and, and, and kind of dis disinhibit the, the subject and, and get the truth out of it. Uh, but I, uh -huh. I, I was never really impressed with that. And as an anesthesiologist, I wasn't that interested in it because, uh, because, you know, well, we don't use pentothal anymore, but propofol and it's true at light, light doses, they are a little disinhibited and you, you and just before they go to sleep, when they're waking up, they may say something, uh, uh, that's personal or, you know, but yeah, must be hilarious. Through that as, as fast as possible. And uh, so I'm not interested in using that, using that, but, but you can disinhibit somebody at just the right dose, but it's very, very transitory unless you try to keep it at their level and then they're, they're unconscious. So, um, uh, but you, you mentioned psychedelics before and what another experiment I like to do is I would predict, well, we, we predict and have evidence that anesthesia slows and dampens these oscillations and that psychedelics would increase the frequency. And uh, we're, we're going to try and look at that also. Increase the frequency oscillations, increase the frequency of consciousness, which would account at least in part for the uh, psychedelic experience. Okay. Now as for collaborating with Penrose, do you mind giving an example of a recent one? How does it look? What sorts of problems do you work on? Let's take a recent example. Well, right now we're trying to finish a, a chapter for a, a book called Quantum, Quantum Mechanics and Consciousness, edited by Shan Gao. I got this one from you. Uh, that's not you. really our book. <laughs> that's, that's a long story. Well, you were editors. Yeah, but, but that was a mistake. That, that's not really our book. They, they used our name, but we had nothing. Well, I, I hope it's your book because it took me quite a bit of time just to get through a bit of it. <laughs> Is it any good? I've never read it. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> it's definitely not your book. Yeah. Well, I was primarily interested in the article by you and Penrose. Okay. And that's well, it. I'll, I'll stand by that. But, yeah. um, but uh, we're, we're writing a chapter now for a book uh, by Shan Gao called Quantum Mechanics and Consciousness. And, and Dave Chalmers has, has an article and a lot of people have articles. And, uh, um, you know, I was thrilled to write another article with Roger, but he's, div he's difficult to work with. Uh, because he's very meticulous. He's got like 20 things going on and everything has to be perfect. So to make a long story short, the, the chapter is three years late and the absolute drop dead deadline is uh, uh, Sunday, the Sunday. And uh, my part, I, you know, I keep working on, but I'm basically wait, uh, waiting on his part. And uh, he's actually putting in some new stuff about retroactivity, backward time effects and mm, uh, non-color effect. And, uh, and so it's worth waiting for. And I hope the, uh, 
the editor feels that way also. Hmm. But um, uh, so that, and now we do it with email. When we first started, we did it with uh, faxes. And uh, I still somewhere have uh, rolls and rolls of fax paper with his original artworks and drawings that I'm trying to preserve and uh, occasional phone calls. And uh, it was slow going. When I first started collaborating uh, with Roger, uh, his wife, Vanessa said, uh, you know, I encourage you, but you should know, be prepared. It'll be very slow going. Uh, uh, Everything has to be just right before he signs off on it. And he's very meticulous and he's way overcommitted. So just be patient. And I'm glad he told me that she told me that because it turned out to be true. In fact, it led to a, an interesting, uh, we had been working on the original uh, article that I mentioned earlier and calculating all this stuff for about a year. and didn't even have a, didn't have a manuscript, but in the meantime, uh, Pat Churchland, who had been at that conference that Roger went to um, uh, back at, at Cambridge uh, and a, a grad student came out with kind of a preemptive attack piece in the Journal of Consciousness Studies, attempting to refute our ideas before we even published anything. Is this Tegmark? And that was later. That was another uh, bogus uh, attack. Well, I'll come. I'll come to him. Uh, but um, now this is Pat Churchland and and a grad student Rick Rush, and uh, um, she uh, uh, materialist, reductionist, computationalist, and they spent the first part of their article uh, attacking the uh, the. Gödel's theorem and non-computability in the second half attacking microtubules. And uh, so, and they're really snotty about it. And uh, the, the title of their article, you know, Roger's famous for a lot of things, including Penrose tilings, so tiling a plane with geometry. And so the title of their article was uh, Penrose's toilings or, or gaps in Penrose's toilings, mm-hmm. that there were gaps because the, there are no gaps in his tilings, but there's yes. gaps in his toilings in terms of his ideas. And the first gaps were about the Gödel's theorem that they attacked. The second was about microtubules. Well, let's give so, it to them. That's a clever title. It was a clever title. And they also said, said for example, that uh, the Penrose-Hameroff hypothesis was no better supported than one in a gazillion caterpillar with hookah hypotheses, hmm. a reference to uh, Alice in Wonderland, that hmm. uh, this was a quite literally a pipe dream, pipe dream. They were basically saying we're, we're BSing everybody. Yeah, that's basically what they were saying. And they were, we were full of it. So that was pretty snotty. And, but it was sufficiently snotty to uh, provoke Roger into, into responding fully. And the, uh, the editor, the publisher of the journal said, you can have, a, you can reply in the next issue, but I'll need a manuscript in two weeks. And so I said, oh, my gosh, you know, it's been a year. We don't have a manuscript. How could we possibly do this in two weeks? Well, we got on the phone and Roger said, I'll tell you what, uh, I can I can answer all the girdle serum stuff. You answer all the microtubule stuff. <laughs> Put the two parts together. We'll write a common abstract and we'll, I can do my part in, in two weeks. I said, I can do my, my part in two weeks. So we did. And uh, the, the microtubule stuff was was pretty easy, actually. For example, their main point, what they thought was their killer argument, was that uh, there's a drug called colchicine, which is used in gout. Gout is right. uh, arth- arthritis where immune cells go into joints, like the big toe, the great toe, and, uh, and cause tremendous inflammation and swelling and pain. It's, it's, very, it's very painful. And, um, and yet, uh, when you take, because it deeply 
polymerizes the microtubules and that paralyzes the immune cells from migrating into the joint. So the microtubules are depolymerized. And they said, see, microtubules are depolymerized and you don't, people who with gout who take colchicine don't lose consciousness. Therefore, microtubules must be unnecessary for consciousness. Right, but it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. It does not, right. Colchicine does not cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, number two, it only affects microtubules that are, rap that are constantly assembling and disassembling, and those in the brain don't. They're oh, quite stable, okay. which is why uh, you can store memory in them. And I found a paper where somebody actually injected colchicine into the, uh, into the, uh, the, the brain of animals and just wiped them out. They were demolished. So I answered that, and uh, there's some other stuff. And Roger Ansegirdle's there, and we put an abstract together. And uh, we wrote, wrote this paper, uh, uh, Gaps, What Gaps? Response to Aggression. That was our first paper in 95. And then uh, next year, we, we had two papers in 96, and then no papers until 2014. And then we rehashed that as an updated version in 2018 or 20, and uh, 2016. And now this, this paper, which uh, we're writing, uh, writing now. So maybe a half a dozen papers over 20 years, but they've all been good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now going to this backward time right. aspect, I heard you mention Libet's experiments and that they don't necessarily show a lack of free will, but perhaps that free will propagates backward in time. Now, can you explain that? Well, Libet did these experiments in... Uh, well, he did two sets of experiments. The first set of experiments that Roger wrote about in his uh, book, The Ember's New Mind, uh, were sensory experiments where he had people uh, uh, under neuro in, in neurosurgery. He worked with a neurosurgeon named Bertram uh, Epstein, who, by the way, was the, the husband of uh, Diane, sorry, Bertram Feinstein, who was the husband of Diane Feinstein, the, the, the governor, from, uh, sorry, the uh, senator from California. She's still around. He passed away years ago, but he was a neurosurgeon and Libet worked with him. And so he had uh, patients that he did uh, uh, neurosurgery on while awake. So he would drill a hole and numb it up with local anesthetic. And once you get into the brain, you can operate on the brain. It doesn't hurt, but you, you, you make, you, you numb up the hole and you can access the brain. And for example, for the, the, the for the finger on, on the opposite hand. So Libet did experiments like he would stimulate the finger and record from the brain and stimulate the, the, uh, the brain and, uh, and then uh, see uh, when, the, when the subject was conscious of feeling the finger. So um, you would expect, or I would expect, not knowing anything beforehand, that if you stimulate the brain, you feel it immediately. If you stimulate the finger, it would, it would be a delay because it had to get to the brain. Mm -hmm. Well, if you stimulate the finger, there is a delay, but it's only 30 milliseconds, evoke potential. So it's, it's pretty fast. But if you stimulate the brain directly, you need to have ongoing activity and it takes about a half a second, 500 milliseconds, because you don't get the evoked potential. But if it continues for 500 milliseconds, you do feel it at 30 milliseconds. What's this evoked are, potential? Okay, so if, if you stimulate the finger, the signal, you get a spike, that's the evoked potential. If you stimulate it here, you don't get the evoked potential, you just get you know ongoing activity, it looks like gamma. But if you do it for half a second, the patient subject has the conscious experience at the time of the evoked potential, 30 milliseconds. So somehow at 30 milliseconds, the brain knows whether or not there's gonna be 500 milliseconds of ongoing activity afterwards. If there is, he or she reports it at 30 milliseconds. That's interesting, okay. If there isn't, then he or she doesn't. And so Libet concluded that there was a signal going backwards in time 
from the time of the uh, what he called neuronal adequacy, and that send this information backward in time. Now, Roger wrote about this in Emperor's New Mind because um, that ha that can happen in quantum physics, which is temporally uh -huh. non-local. Is this related to the subcutaneous rabbit? Have you heard of that? Where you someone yes. on the arm? arm? Yes. So this, so is, this is related to that. Yes. And also the color five phenomenon where the color bounces back and forth and it goes from uh, red to blue and you go red, blue, red, blue, and you can guess, and then it goes red, red, and you know, you're not fooled. And that's because you seem to know what's going on. And the cutaneous rap, it's the, 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 the same thing. I actually wrote a, wrote a chapter about, it. I can send it to you about, about all this. Well, I've written uh, several actually about it and, and it, all, all those can be accounted for by you somehow know, know what's coming. And, this is very important because um, if you and I are talking and you ask me a question and if someone were measuring the activity in my brain uh, for what you said, it'll happen in say 300 to 500 milliseconds after they, they get to my ears. But I will have responded to you at 100 milliseconds. This is very, very standard neuroscience. What mm -hmm. neuroscience says about that is that I respond non-consciously and have a false illusion of answering consciously after the fact. The consciousness is epiphenomenal. My cognitive autopilot, non-conscious self answers you. And then a little later, my conscious self says, oh, I said that, you know, I'm in control. And it means that consciousness is epiphenomenal and illusion, illusory. Mm -hmm. so that's what Dennett says. That's what all, you know, all the big, uh, all the, the big name philosophers say, unless they have some way to, to weasel out of it. And, but if you have backward time, it means that you can have, you can, you can do all that and you can still respond consciously in real time. Has Dennett ever publicly commented specifically on yours or Penrose's theories? No, and he won't. In fact, uh, I, I've argued with him at several meetings and all he does is yell at me without listening to what I'm saying. And uh, in fact- Why do you uh, think that is? Because he doesn't know anything about the brain. He doesn't know the damn thing about the brain. He admits it. He doesn't know a neuron from a hole in the ground. And so all he's, you know, he knows computers and, and that's how computers work. And unfortunately, that's true about, about a lot of a lot of people. Hmm. So uh, we, we actually, uh, my colleague Tom Bever is putting a course to get, we're putting a course together on conscious studies. And, and Tom asked uh, Dan, Dan Dennett, whom he knows from years ago, if he would, and he just blew him off. So he's not interested. And uh you know, they have their position. They don't want to be bothered with the facts. I've been mm. arguing with Dan for years and uh, you can't argue with the guy, you know. What do you disagree with Penrose on? Could be minor, could be metaphysical. Uh, I'm not sure I agree, but I, I would say that I, or I'm not saying I disagree necessarily, but I, I, I tend to go further than he does in certain things. Like, you know, the spiritual implications of, of his whole platonic values mm -hmm. and universal consciousness that he just, he just doesn't, he just won't talk about it. He, just, he says, I don't find it useful to talk about. Uh, and uh, the backward time effects, he's still a little bit reluctant to go as far as I go. But um, uh, stuff about anesthesia, he's, he, you know, he, well, I, I think that once I've explained what I'm trying to, I kind of get ahead of myself in saying things. And then once I, I kind of backfill on what I was trying to say. He, he tends to go. That's happened in our recent, in our recent paper, for example. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I, we're talking about the Hodgkin-Huxley neuron and you integrate and fire. And, it's, and um, that is computable. When the threshold is met, firing happens. 
But if you put electrodes, and this was done in 2006 by Nandorf et al. in Germany, they put electrodes in, in pyramidal cells of awake cats. And what, they and what they find, so presumably they're conscious, they find that there's a tremendous variability from, from firing to firing. So the threshold is changing. Right. Something other than the membrane potential, than the inputs, there's something other than the measurable inputs that are triggering the firing, which controls behavior. And uh, uh, they- and That sounds they, groundbreaking they, because usually it's thought of as you just input a certain voltage electric field and then it will fire? Correct. The synaptic inputs come in, they change the voltage on the membrane of the dendrites in the soma. And when that uh, accumulated integrated membrane potential gets to the exon initiation segment, it's compared to a threshold. And if the threshold is met, firing occurs. That's the standard Hodgkin-Huxley neuron. But in a, in a neuron, in an awake animal, mm. that firing threshold is highly variable. There's some other factor. And so I started calling that a non-computable factor. And uh, Roger uh, didn't understand what I was trying to do. He said, no, non-computability has to do with something deep in quantum physics. And I was saying, yes, I, I know, and, but it has to come into the brain somewhere. And so that's where I thought it was coming in. So uh, he's, come, he's come around to that now, and we're going to include that in our, our paper. So basically, you can measure non-computability in neurons. And uh, that's the, as, a, as a deviation from Hodgkin-Huxley uh, behavior, and, uh, which is also what I was saying before, deviation from, from uh, cognitive uh, uh, autopilot function. Because the Hodgkin-Huxley behavior would be fine for walking down the street doing things that don't require you know, non-computable consciousness or intuition, insight, uh, that, uh, platonic values, uh, values, that sort of thing. So um, I think he's coming, he's, he's seeing, I'm trying to put his non-computability into the brain, specifically at the end of integration in pyramidal neurons, we're at the end of this orchestrated period and reduction, and that can uh, change the firing depending on your conscious thoughts. So rather than re responding reflexively to something or somebody, you think about it or you have a conscious uh, thought or intuition or feeling, well, I just have a feeling I better do something different. You know, I don't want to do that. I'm not sure why, but so it's intuition, it's insight, it's creativity, which are things comes out of this non-computability. And I think it manifests in terms of altering the firing capability of these neurons. Okay. I'm going to take a look at some of the questions that we have here. Actually for now, you know, this podcast or this series has a tendency to get somewhat technical. So I thought, how about this time, instead of leaving it unexplained, how about I, or you, try to explain some of these abstruse and seemingly inscrutable terminologies, and then perhaps someone can understand a, a full quote, and maybe by understanding the parts, they can understand it as a whole. I'm basically taking quotes from your article. So here's one. Okay. How would microtubule quantum computations, which are isolated from the environment, still interact with that environment for input and output? One possibility is that ORC-OR suggests that perhaps phases of isolated quantum computing alternate with phases of classical environmental interaction, e.g. at gamma synchrony. Isolated from the environment. Do you mind explaining that concept for people? Well, uh, for quantum devices and technology have to be isolated from interaction with the environment, which is thought to be random and noisy. And to do that, they do things at absolute, near absolute zero temperature to avoid any thermal oscillations. So in biology, we think that 
inside the tubulins, uh, in the high resonance groups, um, you have a, uh, yeah, that's one you'll have to explain to pi resonance. So why don't we go to that first? All right. So let me back up. So the basic, uh, molecule in, in living systems, uh, is the, the organic ring, the benzene ring or the phenyl ring. So you have six carbons in a hexagon and each carbon has in pure benzene, each carbon has one hydrogen. And that leaves two more bonds. Uh, so one bond goes to uh, uh, three more bonds per, per carbon. One go one each goes to the two neighboring carbons, and you have an extra electron. You have an ele extra bond, so you have three extra electrons in a carbon ring. So what do they do? They form these delocalized clouds above and below the carbon ring. And this is a, a quantum area. It's nonpolar, so there's no charge. Um, but it's neutral because the, the, the positive charge is in the, is in the nuclei. So you have this electron cloud above and below, and it's a quantum entity. It's, it takes up space, small space, volume. And if you put two of these together, the, the electron cloud in one, the electronegativity, will repel the electrons over here. So you get a dipole, and you get a, a, an induced dipole. And there's a dipole in this one, and there's a dipole in this one. And... Uh, this one induces this one, and then the, this one induces back. So you get an oscillation of these dipoles. When you say oscillation in the dipole, you mean oscillation in the charge so that it's more positive on one side than on the negative and it switches or what? The net Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Charge is, is, is neutral, but the dipole means you, you're pushing in, in each cloud, the electrons tend to migrate to one side or the other depending on what's near them. So if there's another cloud near them, they're both neutral. The electrons in one are going to repel the other one. So they tend to do this. They tend to oscillate. And that's okay, just okay. two of them. Now, one of them doesn't do that. And I should also say that if you get a bunch of benzene put them together, uh, if they're not spaced properly, they're flammable. That's gasoline. But if, if you put them so they're spaced in a geometric array, for example, in a planar sheet, that's graphene. And graphene has a lot of quantum properties. But if you put them in a lattice where they're spaced, they can oscillate, and that's basically Frohlich coherence. So um, they're in a nonpolar region. They're isolated from the environment, 
But the question was, okay, let's say you have that in this isolated environment. How do you communicate input and output with the outside world? And uh, that's a very good question. And our answer to that came from a science fiction book by a guy named Paul Benioff, who was one of the inventors of quantum computers. Uh, Deutsch, uh, Benioff, and I forget who, uh, Feynman are generally uh, credited with, you know, inventing the concept of quantum computers. And uh, Benioff uh, was, Roger knew, uh, and actually spoke at our 2003 Quantum Mind Conference, uh, had written a a sci-fi book, and he talked about it in his talk. And he had a quantum computer robot, and it went through phases of quantum and then collapsed to the answer, and that would communicate with the environment. And during that phase, you get inputs. So you get output, input, then quantum again, process, collapse. So you have the alternating phases of quantum and classical, quantum, classical. And during the classical, uh, you'd have interaction with the both uh, output and input. Now, when we said that for 40 hertz, uh, I would change it now to, to say the same thing happens at, say, 10 megahertz, because we think the Orca War events are happening much faster. So uh, after each event, uh, you're in the classical phase, you, you uh, express the outputs, and that can trigger the neuron to fire or do whatever, and receive inputs, then you go back into the quantum phase. So you're alternating be- between quantum and classical phases roughly 10 million times a second. Okay, there's a hydrophobic property of the benzene rings, I believe. Hydrophobic nonpolar, right. There's no charge. So let's explain those terms. Hydrophobic, why is that important, and then nonpolar? They're pretty much the same thing, actually. Hydrophobic means uh, water aversive, so no water. Water is polar. So basically, think of the the brain or the body as a bunch of different solubility compartments. If you're an anesthesiologist or a pharmacologist or giving drugs to a patient— You'd, be, you'd need to know uh, where in the body the drug is going to go. And if it's polar, if it's charged, then it's going to be very soluble in water and blood and tend to, to go to charged surfaces like receptors on the surfaces of, of neurons and so forth. If, however, you're giving a drug like an anesthetic, which is nonpolar, which is uh, lipid-like, uh, oil-like, it doesn't like to be in water. It's very insoluble. So it traverses the blood quickly and goes to fat, membranes, and proteins that have these nonpolar regions inside of them. And that's where, that's where it goes to very quickly. And that's, and that's where it acts. And in the nonpolar regions uh, is where the quantum stuff can happen without being exposed to at least to polar charges. So you've reduced the, uh, the, the degrees of freedom and created what uh, is called in, in the quantum computing business a decoherence-free subspace temporarily where you can do quantum stuff without uh, without getting uh, messed up by the environment by the uh, classical environment okay forgive me if i'm misunderstanding this but there's a the microtubule has three layers if i remember correctly there's a water tube inside and then there's the tubulin on the outside i've only read about the a lattice so i don't know much about the b lattice and then there's apparently another layer i just saw anurban Right? Okay. Anurban, give a talk on this, but I don't know much about what's going on in the outer layer. So is compu- is quantum computation happening on the layer with the tubulin, or is it inside where the water is? Okay, so when you say inside, so microtubes are hollow tubes. So you have an outside, which is, there's charges coming out, and it's basically water around it. Then you have the wall of the microtubule, which is about uh, four nanometers thick. It can be very long, but four man. And then you have the inner core, which is 15 nanometers of, again, water, ordered water. 
and then you have the other wall. So you have a hollow solder water. water. Huh? Well, the water in the water and ion, there's also ions uh, in, in the interior of the microtubule may be completely ordered because you have charges coming out from the in, uh, from the inside part of the tubulin and then more ordered water, more ordered water. And the, the water may become part of the quantum state in that. Uh, that that's oh, OK. That's another another uh, can of worms. Sort. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, I co-authored a paper in 94 95 about the uh about quantum states in the water but in uh and, and that may be true but but we think it's originating in the nonpolar inside nonpolar region inside the wall of the microtubule uh where it's sheltered from the water either on the outside of the microtubule and the inside of the microtubule in the nonpolar regions which is exactly where anesthetics go and uh, so we've coined this term, the quantum underground, where anesthesia goes, the anesthetic nonpolar molecules go and reside to block consciousness and essentially affect very little else. The brain is still active under anesthesia and all, it's, all that's gone really is consciousness. When someone has Alzheimer's, it affects the tau proteins, correct? Tau proteins are microtubule associated proteins. And uh, the tau proteins, Basically, microtubules disassemble and become unstable. That's, I think that's a big part, problem with Alzheimer's disease. And the tau, tau binding at specific places on the microtubules can encode memory. And, uh, and when the microtubules disassemble, whether the tau falls off first, and then that destabilizes the microtubules, or the microtubules destabilize, and then the tau falls off. You lose the microtubules, you lose synapses, because the microtubules make synapses you lose the tau uh, memory function on the microtubules. So it's all bad. And um, I've been wanting to do a study using ultrasound into the brain, which we think can repolymerize microtubules. And we've been, we've been studying my, uh, ultrasound in the brain for a while and showing that it, it can enhance mood and is safe. And we're uh, gearing up to do a, a study on Alzheimer's and dementia. Can you use this to form a treatment for Alzheimer's? That is, let's say you encourage so. the stability of tau? We hope so. Well, it's the stability of the microtubules. I think uh, that tau is a microtubule associated protein. Right, right. Okay. Everybody gets worked up about tau. They can measure tau in spinal fluid. They can do this, but they're not, they're not thinking about what the tau does when it's not messed up, when it's doing its, you know, it's functioning properly. And what it is, is a microtubule associated protein and, and, and sits on microtubule lattices uh, at specific locations, which seems to, to, to code for uh, delivery of, of synaptic uh, uh, cargo to, to synapses. So it actually plays a role that, that's lost in Alzheimer's. Okay, you mentioned that there's some self-similar property of conductance at the different levels of scales. Now, sorry, I just copied this down. I don't know if this is an exact quote. What does that mean? that there's self-similar properties of conductance at different levels. So Anur Banyapati, whom you mentioned several times, who's, who's a good friend of mine, uh, has done amazing work on, on microtubules over the years, going back from 2009, he published in 2013, 2014, and then more recently. And basically he used, yeah, there you go. Uh, that image has gotten around a lot. Um, and basically- Just for the audience, in case they can't see, this is one of the slides. I was gonna ask you to explain at some point, but we can do that after. It's three level. I have it memorized actually. On the left, you have three levels of scale, and then uh, you use different types of uh, uh, nanoprobes, scanning, tunneling microscopes, atomic force, electrodes, this and that. And uh, so 
you're putting electrodes on a microtubule. Now, normally microtubule, all proteins are, are insulators. They don't conduct very well. What Anurban did was he, he put electrodes and then he swept and then he stimulated with alternating current and he swept the current from zero up to, I, I forget how high, megahertz. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then eventually right, terahertz. Right, right. You're right, right. And he found at certain frequencies that you would get conductance at certain critical frequencies, microtubules would, be, would conduct, would, be, would, would have the resonances or conductances in a triplet of triplet patterns. And these triplet of triplet patterns repeated about every, not quite every three orders of magnitude. Uh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay. And so what is the significance of it resonating? What does that mean when it resonates? So you're sending it an AC current? Yeah. Okay. Now, is that much like when you put water in the microwave and the water heats up? No, I keep water out of this. Uh, water, water is the enemy here. There, there may be, because uh, it's, it's polar. And these electrodes are attached directly to the microtubule. So I think the conductance is happening through the, the pi resonance inside the, uh, and, and inside the wall of the microtubule in this helical pathway. Ah, uh, he's measuring conductance. I see. Yeah. And, the, the, uh, and the, at, at certain frequencies, the microtubule is conductance, highly mm, conductive. Nope. So what is the significance of this? It's interesting geometrically, visually, but what is? Well, what it's a, it, it's a, it's, he called it ballistic conductance. He couldn't prove quantum because there's a classical interface between the electro, electrode and the surface of the microtubule. But within the, you know, within the, the pi resonance, it, it was probably something like superconductivity or some kind of quantum state, prolic resonance, something like that. So it's a quantum state at critical resonant frequencies that, that have something to do with the vibrational frequencies of the microtubules is there a way to use anesthesia to test the consciousness of someone so for example you mentioned there are these buddhist monks who claim to have a higher level of consciousness so can you take someone who has a lower level of consciousness give them a certain amount of anesthesia see how much does it take to put them asleep and then see if you need more to put someone who claims to be higher in consciousness I, I don't whether think it's because I'm not sure there'd be an effect, actually. I don't think, you know, I don't think a, 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 a well, I don't know whether a, a meditator or a genius or some extraordinary person requires any more anesthesia than anybody else. I, I don't know that. It, it could be, but that would seem to be, you know, trying to split hairs at a level where, you know, I'm more interested in knowing how anesthesia works on anybody or, or an animal or an organoid or a mouse or, or any human. And we, we still don't know that. I mean, that's a very good question you asked, but it's kind of like, we're not there yet to you and that. We want to know how it works on anybody, much less, you know, uh, the Dalai Lama or something like that. What are frolic resonances? Frolic coherences or frolic resonance, frolic coherences, what, what I talked about before, where you have these nonpolar dipoles that oscillate and they couple to the mechanical uh, vibration also. The key here is that everybody says the brain is too warm, wet and noisy for, for quantum effects. So warm means it's too hot and noisy also means it's too hot. But if you have a, a geometrical lattice with, with mechanical vibrational resonances, the heat's going to pump it. So it's going to have these oscillations that are coherent. So you couple the quantum mm, coherence okay. and the mechanical coherence. That's why you're saying it was like a laser. Yes, exactly. Okay. Is computation happening at the level of glial cells or is it just the pyramidal neurons? Good question. Uh, glial cells have a lot of microtubules all cells have even plant cells have microtubules um the the pyramidal cells uh 
so what's different about microtubules in, in neurons in general is that, okay, let me back up. In all, take any cell at all, and uh, uh, an amoeba or, or any cell. You can, the microtubules are going to radiate out from the central part of the cell like spokes of a wheel. They're going to be continuous because you want their structural support. And they're going to, they have the same polarity. They have a plus end and a minus end. So they're all unipolar and radial. Uh, yeah, but that's, that's for pyramidal, right? Yeah. So pyramidal, they're interrupted and of mixed polarity. So you have one going here, one going, going here. And, uh, and um, if, if, you, if you wanted them there for structural support, like the skeleton of your body, you wouldn't have them broken and interrupted. Okay. And why would you have them mixed polarity uh, up and down? Uh -huh. And that's been a big mystery. And what we, what Roger and I think is that, that if you have two microtubules in mixed polarity next to each other, and they're in a common voltage, they're going to have slightly different frequency, resonant frequencies, and that's going to give rise to beat frequencies. So going back to what I said before about, you know, eventually when I, and, and what you said about repeating at different frequency ranges, we want to get the, the cell similar patterns from the terahertz, gigahertz, megahertz, kilohertz, and hertz, which is EEG. So the EEG may be kind of a, a snapshot at a very slow frequency of what's happening at you know, kilohertz, gig, uh, megahertz, gigahertz, and terahertz. So it's all kind of more like music than computation is, is another way of putting it. When you have resonances and, and harmonics and interference beats like in music. I see at the bottom of this, there are, this is just for the people who are watching all over. Yeah. So what are these frequencies indicating? Is it that same Anurban? Yeah. Yeah. That, that goes along with the range. With, yeah. Yeah. And then I try to put it in a schematic to, to show what's happening at each level. Hmm. Does this mean that potentially quantum computers can be conscious? They would have to collapse by Roger's mechanism. And right now quantum computers are built at out, uh, near, near absolute zero. And um, uh, they collapse because somebody makes a measurement, which introduces randomness. So as presently constituted, no. However, uh, uh, my friend Hartmut Nevin, who is the head of uh, uh, Google, Google's quantum AI, uh, Roger and I visited there uh, a year or so ago. And uh, uh, we were talking about this. And uh, they, they had uh, uh, discovered some anomalies in their quantum computing when it seemed to be uh, collapsing prematurely. And uh, I had, a, and Hartman told me that, I said, well, are you sure your quantum computer is not conscious? You know, it's having the Rogers objective reduction. And he said, oh my God, I hope not. Because that would have created a, a public relations issue. Mm -hmm. So the, one of his people gave a seminar and it showed you know, tons and tons of equations that I didn't understand and concluded that no, it wasn't objective reduction and their quantum computer wasn't conscious. I'm not sure I, I understood, but they at least, they at least thought about it. However, I think it is possible to have a, a conscious quantum computer if you built it out of something like uh, graphene or fullerenes that's, that's much more biological and did it at warm temperature and, and pumped it to get to get coherence, which would be basically building something like a microtubule in an artificial sense. I, I you know, that's, it's not something I want to do because I, I'm not technological, but I think it's, it, that is possible. That may be the future of consciousness in, you know, in vitro. If you want to have a conscious computer, that'd be the way to do it. Hmm. 
In the brain, I believe it's topological qubits. The topological, yes. Yeah, so in the in the um, in the uh, uh, in the A ladder, have these patterns. We Sorry, hold on. You're cutting each... off. Just one second. Do you mind repeating that? Because as far as I know, I don't think Google is pursuing topological qubits, but I know Microsoft is. So if anyone has a chance of producing a conscious computer, it would it would be them? But I'm not sure if topological qubits are required or if it's just because of the brain needing some error right. correcting and topological qubits seem to be resistant to them. Right. And I have to be careful here because Roger, uh, this is where another, uh, where Roger and I don't, don't agree. And I'm not sure it's because I'm not explaining uh, what I think properly or he's smarter than me and knows I'm wrong before I even get there. Uh, but what happened was, uh, this goes back to the late nineties. Roger invited me to the, uh, to the Royal Society meeting on, uh, on quantum information, which was right when all the entanglement stuff was coming out. Really exciting time. We had all these uh, super smart young physicists talking about entanglement over hundreds of miles and this and that. And, uh, you know, I mean, the aspect experiment proving entanglement didn't happen until 86. So 10, 10 or 12 years later, you know, a lot had happened and they were talking about this technology. And we had a talk by uh, uh, John Preskill of Caltech and he showed a, uh, a, a lattice of, for a quantum computer, which was orthogonal, where he had the quantum com computations running in one direction, kind of up and down. And he had the quantum error correction running sideways. So they were intersecting. And the quantum error correction would, would correct the, the, what was happening on the, on the vertical. And uh, I kind of woke up from, from dozing because I, 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 they had lost me. A hexagonal lattice, like thinking of a microtubule. And, well, sure, why not? It, where you have it going this way. So, on the coffee break, I was talking with Roger about it, and he said, "Wouldn't it be interesting if the Fibonacci pathways were some kind of topological qubit?" And, uh, but for him, topology means like you know the 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 coffee cup uh, has a topology because of this, mm -hmm. and it has a whole another meaning that that I wasn't catching on to. So. Uh, I don't want to talk about, I, so now I just call them helical geometric pathways, but I think they could be topological in a sense. And if you had them in a, in a right, because in the microtubule, if you have a, the helical pathway, it's much more stable from a quantum standpoint, because uh, if, if, for example, one individual tubule gets out of whack, it's going to be pulled back into quantum coherence by the others. So I think these helical geometric pathways, whether you call them topological or not, might be, the, might be a way to go for quantum computing in some kind of material that doesn't need to be absolutely cold. Is there something specific about the lattice that's conducive to quantum computing or consciousness? Because I know that Penrose has done some work on the tilings, which are aperiodic, which are not tilings. Well, they're not periodic tilings. I don't know the, about the relationship between periodic and aperiodic. I don't know if Penrose was using those tilings to demonstrate that, well, we can do something that's non-computational and that was it, or if it has some other implication for consciousness. Good question. I'm not sure, actually. I've kind of asked him that myself, and, and uh, I, I get the feeling I'm not even close to being able to figure out what he's saying on that. So uh, I can't really answer that. But... Uh, the helical pathways, I think, are, are very useful because they avoid decoherence and help us in other ways. Why is it that IIT says that consciousness occurs at the back of the brain, but then the global neuronal workspace theory says that it occurs at the front? And where does your theory say it takes place? In pyramidal cells. 
so the cortex has six layers and the cortex covers well you know the whole not the cerebellum but everything else is on top and it's six layers and uh so when, when uh information comes in it goes to layer uh five well it winds up in layer five it goes to four and then from four right, it goes right, one right, two right. three and six and one two three and six converge on layer five and layer five is the pyramidals pyramidal neurons that have these huge cone-shaped cell bodies they call them pyramids because they look pyramid but actually they're they're cone-shaped and they're enormous compared to other neurons and they uh they have uh the biggest array of mixed polarity interrupted microtubules anywhere and their basal or dendrites are continuous and this so they form one continuous sheet over the whole cortex and they are the and their outputs uh, elicit behavior and their apical dendrites give rise to EEG. So I think consciousness can happen in, in I think it could happen in, in anything really, if, but it may be proto-conscious if it doesn't have information. But the most li likely place in the brain would be among the pyramidal neurons of layer five throughout the whole cortex with lateral connections. And I think consciousness can actually move around within it. So if you're having an auditory sensation, it's an auditory cortex, visual, it's in the visual cortex and other, other areas that are related, prefrontal cortex. I mean, um, with, with uh, there, the whole brain there are three, you know, it goes in three ways from thalamus to primary cortex, primary cortex to the front of the brain, front of the brain elsewhere. And it's that third wave elsewhere that seems to correlate with consciousness because that's the only way that's affected mm -hmm. by anesthesia. Mm -hmm. Now, how that, hit, how that fits with GNW and IIT and uh, uh, higher order it? theory and recursive processing, all the other theories, I'm not sure. And I know that uh, in the uh, Templeton uh, program on accelerating research and consciousness, there's a $5 million study, uh, front of the brain versus back of the brain, IIT versus uh, global neuronal workspace. And I'm not sure what that's going to prove, actually, because I think under different circumstances, consciousness can be anywhere in the brain. But we'll find out. We're part of that program, too, but we're, we're much more uh, 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 focused on looking at effects of anesthesia on quantum vibrations in microtubules. And if we don't see that, we're, we'll, we'll be falsified. So we're, we're putting their money where our mouth is. I'm not sure if this other study will prove anything, but we'll see. What do you I actually, people... you know, I, yeah. I've talked and read a lot about uh, IIT and the more I hear about this, I, I don't really understand it. I, I know it's, it's some measure of integration, but they say that it can happen at any level. So I asked Christoph and Julia, well, what happens if, if you measure microtubules in, uh, if you measure phi in microtubules, they said, yeah, it could be extremely high there. So I said, well, how do you measure it? And they would, they, they couldn't say how you would measure it. And I said, what if we get these quantum vibrations in microtubules? Could you apply and see if they, that is phi? And they, they wouldn't answer that either. So uh, I don't know, actually. And I think all those other theories can be more or less correct. They're all at the level of neurons, although IAT said it can happen at any level, but they really focus on neurons. They could all be happening and then, but still need ORCOR happening at a deeper level. So they're all basically... Uh, our cognitive architectures that may or may not have anything to do with consciousness. Of course, I'm, you know, I'm skeptical. I'm the enemy according to them. And, uh, but I think that you need to go to a deeper level into the quantum quantum realm.
Do you feel like anyone else has a scientific theory that confronts the hard problem? Or well, even you're, something that's it, posed as rigorous, even something slightly rigorous that could be philosophical? I think, uh, I think our theory is head and shoulders above any other theory in that regard, in terms of rigor or even approaching the hard problem. I mean, everybody else basically says it's an emergent phenomenon at a critical level of something, complexity, some nonlinear function that has not yet been defined. Maybe it's phi, but what is phi? We don't really know. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, dubious about that. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're way farther out on a limb. We're much easier to falsify than any other theory. And that's both good and bad. It's bad because we could be falsified, but it's good in that we have a specific theory. Uh, you know, if it can't be falsified, then it's not a theory. What are some ways of falsifying it? Well, the, what I just said, we're, we're in this program now. We're, we're starting experiments very soon. Uh, so the way, they showed fo- the, the way they showed quantum coherence, quantum uh, effects in photosynthesis protein is take a, this protein and do what's called 2D electron spectroscopy, where you put, I think, three laser beams in and get two laser beams out. And if there's a, or, or two, emission, two uh, emissions from it, and if there's a quantum superposition in the protein, then you get a sawtooth interference uh, set of, of interference peaks coming out. And that is indicative that there's a quantum superposition in the protein. So that was done with an FMO protein of about 25 kilodaltons. And we'll be trying it at tubulin, which is 110 kilodaltons, 110,000. What's a kilodalton? Kilodalton. Uh, What's uh, that? That's a unit I, of atomic mass unit is a dalton. Ah, ah, okay, okay. Tubulin okay. is 110, the molecular, the molecular weight is a, our atomic weight is 110,000. So uh, if you count up all the uh, protons and neutrons, so it has, I don't know how many atoms out of that, but um, uh, that's, uh, uh, it, the tubulin is four times the size of the protein they previously measured on, is what I'm trying to say. So it's, it's, uh, it's a step up. And the guy doing it is Greg Scholes, who did some of the original work in the photosynthesis protein. He's an expert in this. So he thinks he can do it, and there's some tricks involved. And if we see that, if we see that quantum interference at room temperature in a, in a tubulin protein, we'll then attempt to anesthetize it and see if it goes away proportional to the potency of the anesthetic. And we'd like to also give it psychedelics and see if it increases. Uh, uh, speaking of psychedelics, you mentioned that, well, I'm not sure if it was you, but there's an indole group, and then yes. they interact with the benzene in some manner. Uh, an indole has a benzene and a five-sided ring combined it's a fuse it's fused so it's found in tryptophan the amino acid it's found in most of the psychedelics you have this indole ring and uh it's amazing actually that this the neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine and the psychedelics all have these same pi resonance groups that that are are conducive to quantum effects i don't know if you've heard of this thought i think you have because i think i got it from you there's a thought experiment by Koch called i don't know what to call it other than binocular rivalry and i'm not sure if it has implications for your theory or implications for some other theory, but do you mind outlining what that is and then what your thoughts are on it? Yeah. Well, actually uh, it was done by Nikos Logothetis uh, where you present different images to different, uh, to the two eyes. Uh, so one eye seeing one scene, one eye seeing the other thing. Uh, the other way to think of it is uh, the Necker cube where, where you see in the foreground or the background, it shifts back and forth or the, the, the vase and the face and that sort of thing. There's two different perceptions. But if you, if you put the two different things, you have a conscious perception of one, and then it switches to the other, and it switches back and forth. And um, uh, I would say that you have a superposition of both, and it collapses to one, 
and then it collapses to the other. So I would, you know, that's, that'd be our explanation and my explanation for that. Let's get to Penrose and his explanation as to how consciousness arises. So there's a superposition at a quantum level and when it collapses, that is a small proto-consciousness moment. And somehow that consciousness moment is either influenced by or accesses platonic forms. Yes, although, yes. Uh, well, if it's happening, if it's proto-consciousness happening here, there, and everywhere, it's going to have very little effect. It's going to be, it's not going to be affected very much by these platonic forms, which uh, are kind of preferred states in, and uh, in, our, in our paper, Roger came up with the name of the equations that actually govern this, but I, I forget what they are at the moment. Um, but you need, a, you need a pretty organized or orchestrated uh, superposition for that effect to be significant. Uh, yes, that's the idea that it's not random, like as it would be in measurement or decoherence, but there's some influence due to these uh, platonic, platonic values uh, or preferred states. And therefore, if you're mindful, it, it'd be like what we call intuition or creativity or insight or hunch or stroke of genius or the way of the Tao or divine guidance or you know however you want to put it. Speaking of stroke of genius, the part of your theory and Penrose's theory that I like the most is not just the ingenuity of it, but the fact, and so for example, you fold in multiple mysteries, like how does one integrate quantum theory with gravity and so on, but. And by the way, the, let me just say, sure. let me just say we, we're criticized, but I don't want to interrupt your train of thought because I want to hear what you're going to ask me. Yeah, yeah, it's a compliment, so you better well, hear it. But, but, you know, we get criticized uh, for, you know, well, People really, Chalmers has, has ridiculed us and, and Steven Pinker said, well, quantum theory is one mystery, consciousness, maybe they're the same mystery. Ha ha. Well, damn it, maybe they are. And Occam's razor would suggest that the minimization of mysteries is a good thing. I mean, Dave Chalmers, a good friend of mine, ridiculed us by saying, oh, they're just invoking the mythical law of minimization of mysteries. But if you, if you believe in Occam's, razors, Occam's razor, you know, one explanation for several mysteries is a good thing. And when I hear that, I'm reminded of a talk by Tegmark and you, where you were both critiquing one another. And Tegmark said, hey, maybe consciousness is explained in the same way that we thought there were different laws for billiard balls than the moon, and it turned out to be one law. Well, you can use that same logic to suggest that quantum mechanics has something to do with consciousness in the same way. Okay, anyway, what I like about your theory, yours and Penrose, is not just the fact that it's creative and inventive, but there's a gallantry, there's an endurance that you have to go against the prevailing norms and to take criticism for years that you're a crackpot and so on. And to me, that that's not easy. That's Most people would consciously buckle or unconsciously. So that is some, I can't convey in words how difficult that is. And that I actually find commendable. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, uh, Roger's just above it all. And uh, from my, you know, but although he's, he's sensitive and he doesn't like being criticized, but but I think he's he's operating on a higher level than, than the rest of us. So for him, it's just, well, it, they'll, they'll figure it out eventually. My perspective about being criticized and yeah, it, it hurts. Um, but, um, you know, I'm, I, I don't need grants. I don't need to go out and get grants to fund my livelihood. So I don't need to, follow somebody else's idea of what's important to put food on the table. I, you know, I make my living as an anesthesiologist. I'm an academic, so I have, I do research and, and so forth, but my livelihood doesn't depend. I follow my nose. I follow my intuition. It's, 
it's more of a, I, I hate to say it's a hobby because that sounds demeaning because it's very important to me. Um, but um, it's, why is it so important? It's the most interesting question in the world. I mean, it's uh, it's 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 what I do. You know, if I were uh, if my hobby were uh, well, I used to ski a lot. If it was skiing, it, what I love is you just want to go out and ski, and it's it's what I enjoy doing. And you know, it's fun, and it's gotten me to see the world. I met people like Roger and you, and countless other people, and been uh, all over the world. You know, before COVID, and uh, hopefully will again, and. Uh, you know, it keeps me going. Like you said, I'm pretty old, but I'm still highly motivated. And, and I never said you're pretty old. I said, but I, well, it's true. I am pretty old, but I'm still, uh, I'm still doing anesthesia, uh, although I'm cutting back on time. And, uh, but my research keeps me going, you know, it's, it's what I love to do among other things. What does your theory have to say about zero point consciousness or the view from nowhere? Oh yeah. Nothingness. Yeah. So if in med if you meditate, uh, it's just contentless conscious, whether it's contentless or not, uh, is, is debatable. Some people will say, well, nothingness is something. Um, but I think you can be highly conscious of just, uh, pure conscious consciousness with feelings. I think, you know, our feelings content, I, I think, you know, it depends. It's a semantic question. So I think you can be highly conscious without any content. And sometimes that's the best, the best types of the best type of consciousness. When you say it's the best type, do you mean that it comes with euphoria, or do you mean that somehow it's aiding your regular life when you come back to it? Well, it could be the latter, but you know, at the time I was just thinking it's just peaceful and euphoric and and pure existence and and very gratifying. You know. Have you heard of Wolfram's computational theory? I know Wolfram. Which computational? No. His physics theory that says that perhaps at the bottom of our universe is something like hypergraphs, and there's a rule that dictates the update of the hypergraph, and then that can lead to regularities that we interpret as particles and so on. It, it could be. Uh, it sounds a little like Roger's idea, but he wouldn't call it co computation. I think uh, you know the whole idea of the brain is a computer, is, and the universe is a computer is maybe uh it's brain is more like a an orchestra and consciousness is more like music than a computation have you heard of bernardo castrop's theories of consciousness uh, a little bit yeah i know bernardo and i've heard him speak and he's kind of an idealist and uh where consciousness is everything and uh you know he has a rigorous approach to it and i hear that sound that's the sweet sound of success with shopify Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. 
Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. And I respect that. Uh, I just think that, uh, you know, matter is also real and we kind of oscillate between a quantum and a classical realm at a high frequency. So I don't think it's quite right to say that, that con- consciousness is all there is. I think there's, there's a real world out there too, a classical world. What I was wondering about your theory is how does it solve the hard problem when it seems like there's this material base and then there's a collapse and that collapses consciousness. But then I'm wondering, okay, how is the collapse consciousness? Because that's of a different ontological category. So you're starting from material and then somehow you produce consciousness, but it still seems to me to lack an explanation as to why consciousness arises. You have to, you have to say that experience is a fundamental component of the universe. Now, a lot of people say that panpsychists, panpsychists say that idealists say that idealists say that that's all there is. Uh, panpsychists say, would say, I guess that it's a property of, of matter that every atom has a property or state of of qualia of consciousness and uh, our approach is more more of a process philosophy more along the lines of alfred north whitehead who said that consciousness is a sequence of events and doesn't even bring in matter you know it's a sequence of events of, of occasions of experience occurring in a wider field of of uh, of experience and uh it was uh abner shimini who made the observation that Whitehead's occasions of experience are very much like quantum state reductions. And Whitehead was, was aware of, of quantum and didn't, and talked about it a little bit, but, but the idea is that consciousness is not a property of matter, but it's, a, it's an event. Like a, a photon is an event or um, things are events, occurrences that, that happen rather than being states of matter. And what that does is the event cre- creates a particular state of matter. So if you have a superposition of multiple possibilities and it collapses to this, that's the state that's created. And the transition from going from both to one emits, I don't know if emit is the proper verb, uh, causes, creates, or is equivalent to a moment of conscious experience with qualia. You could say it's a quail. It's, it's a quantum of, of experience. Mm, interesting. What does your theory have to say about free will? Um, well, first of all, you need the backward time effect to be able to act in real time. Uh, it, uh, it doesn't address determinism because even if you do act in real time, you still have the problem. Well, maybe it was always going to be that way because of everything else that, that's mm-hmm. already happened. But when you bring in the backward time effects, I think that gives you the possibility of free will. But you're still, you're still governed by, if that's true, you're still governed by you know the deterministic Schrodinger equation up to that point. And... Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe even the platonic values. So, you know, the, the best they could say is that, that free will is the experience of your volition being influenced by platonic values. And actually, I have a paper about that called How Quantum Brain Biology Can Rescue Conscious Free Will. But it, it deals with the backward time effect rather than the other, the other issues. But, but that just, paper is published already? In 2012, uh, uh, How Quantum Brain Biology Can Rescue Conscious Free Will. And I think it's got more views than any other paper I've written. It's, uh, it's in one of the Frontiers journals, something like 50,000 views. I'll link it in the description. 
Okay, now this question, I'm not sure if it's better directed at Penrose or to you. And I'm not sure who's the obverse of the two, but I'll, for the sake of flattering you, I'll pretend it, I'll say it's you for this conversation. There's a strong anthropic principle and a weak one. Now, as far as I know, actually, I don't recall which is which, so let me see. Well, you can explain it. I can't find it right now. One has the causal error of going in the other direction. Yeah, well, basically, the anthropic principle is that uh, uh, the if you look at the 20 or so values of the parameters that govern the universe, the charge of this and the, the sep and uh, uh, all the things that govern at the microscopic right, 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 level, right. Okay. if they weren't exactly, if all 22, I think, weren't exactly what they were, what they are, we wouldn't have a universe with, with stars, light, life, and consciousness. So they have to be exactly, exactly how they are for us to be here. And one view is that, it, you know, uh, God did it, you know, that there's a prime mover and he created, he or she created the universe the way it is. And if, I think that's the strong anthropic principle. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, the other view is that, um, is that, it brings in multiple worlds and that there's an infinite number of, of worlds and that we happen to live in the one world, the one and only world that has all the parameters, right. That can have consciousness so that um, uh, all the other worlds, they don't have con So it, it, it solves the problem of, you know, the, that we won the cosmic lottery by having all these numbers being exactly the way they are by saying, well, that's, that's only because it's, it's a, uh, it's a selector's bias that, you know, the, we're asking the questions because we're in the one and only universe that has the, pro, that has consciousness. Um, but then you have all these other worlds. What's the, you know, what's the point? Um, so I don't like that. And then uh, Chalmers and uh, Kelvin McQueen tried to, to say, they have kind of a Copenhagen view of consciousness causes collapse. And they were saying, well, consciousness is coming from another uh, multiple worlds. I think they were saying that. And I said, well, if that's the case, it'd be coming from a world with inferior, inferior consciousness because of the end. So they, they dropped that. So the explanation I like is uh, we actually talked about this in our, in our recent papers. You know, Roger has this whole other theory about cyclical conformal cosmology that the Big Bang was preceded by another eon and that was preceded by another eon and so forth. And uh, I saw, I said, well, Roger, do you think there was uh, consciousness in the previous eon? He said, well, sure, I mean, should have, could have been, should have been, why not? And uh, I then thought about a, a book by uh, Lee Smolin about, called Life of the Cosmos. And uh, he was talking about uh, in a black hole. Like that, an evolutionary uh, model. Pardon me? An evolutionary model. Yeah, that, that what comes out on the other side is an improved version of what, what went in. So I said, could that apply to your, you know, big bangs and in, in eons so that that uh, every transition from eon to eon, the parameters mutate or evolve. And so what comes out on the other side is a slightly improved or maybe dramatically improved version of the parameters to support consciousness. And that, you know, the universe is evolving eon to eon to optimize consciousness. So I was a little surprised he didn't just say no and said, yeah, it could be. So we put that in the, that's in one of our recent papers suggesting that, uh, that consciousness is actually steering the universe um, 
by, by these transition points, uh, big bang transition points. And then eon to eon, consciousness gets a little bit better each time. Mm-hmm. Instead of universes giving rise to one where there are great conditions for intelligent self-consciousness, that is the multiverse theory, the weak anthropic principle, you have consciousness is driving the progression of the universe evolutionarily, as in Penrose's cyclical model. Okay, so then this to me implies that there are better laws or more adaptive physical constants. So do you or Penrose make any predictions as to what would be considered better for consciousness in terms of further tweaking these fundamental constants? I can't tell you exactly, you know, what would be, what would improve consciousness. Uh, but with all these 22 parameters, you know, there must be some combination that might optimize it in the sense that how, I don't know how, but, you know, maybe the platonic values are, are evolving. Maybe the experience is getting more fun or feels better. I don't know. But how would you, you know, if you want to improve consciousness, what, you know, what would, what would be a way to improve it outside of getting rid of people who want to kill other people and that sort of thing. But um you know, just how would it get better? I'm not sure, but I think, I think it's, it's one possibility. What else, I mean, what, what else would be the point of, of the universe evolving to improve what? In other words, I don't see consciousness as kind of a, uh, of an afterthought. I think of it as more, more primary. Mm -hmm. At one point you mentioned that you can vibrate, literally vibrate the microtubules to treat cognitive disorders and that you did this to yourself at some point. Okay. Okay, yeah. what were the results of that, and can this be done at home? I got to be careful here for and not practice medicine over the internet. But but uh, when uh, when Anderbahn came out with this idea that uh, or discovered that there were these vibrations in microtubules, uh, including in megahertz, then um, um, you know, so he had terahertz, gigahertz, megahertz, kilohertz. So I said, hmm, I wonder if there's a way to treat the microtubules. So terahertz is is infrared and people actually do try that but it's kind of hard to get photons into the brain uh gigahertz is microwaves i wasn't interested in putting microwaves in my brain although that's that apparently that uh that weapon that the russians or the, i forget who used it on our embassy people these loud pops and apparently that was microwave and uh, so i wasn't interested in doing that uh megahertz is in electromagnetics is radio waves wasn't interested in doing that, but megahertz in mechanical is ultrasound. And we use ultrasound and anesthesia mm. all the time. And so when I read this, I looked over and there's an ultrasound machine sitting there. And I said, I wonder if anybody's put ultrasound into the brain. And ultrasound's been around forever and it's mechanical vibrations, megahertz bounces off, echoes off surfaces. So you get an image inside the body. You can see the babies in the uterus and so forth. And so I, I, I looked up and sure enough, a guy had been putting uh, ultrasound into the brains of animals and getting behavioral effects. And, uh, you know, they can move their paw. You could get it. You can make them move their paw by hitting the paw, paw region and physiological effects. And uh, I wondered uh, what would be the effect on mental states. And uh, um, it, ultrasound is approved for, had been approved for imaging the brain. So people would be getting ultrasound in the brain, but it wasn't very good compared to, you know, MRI and CT for imaging the brain. So it wasn't really useful. So I said to my anesthesia colleagues, you know, we have, we have chronic pain patients who are depressed. In addition to taking, taking care of people in the operating room for surgery, we, we see chronic pain patients do nerve blocks and this sort of thing. And I had I'd done our, I worked in our pain clinic a while. And I said, you know, they're, they're all depressed. Maybe we should put ultrasound into their brain and see if they feel better. All over the brain or in a specific region? Well, I didn't, I didn't get that far. And I, that, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. And, 
and my friend said, okay, you go first. You know, we don't try it on anybody in, unless we try it on ourselves. Well, you have and an so, easy head for it. Yeah, that's true. I do. And, uh, but it was, it was also my idea. In fact, that's what he said. That's what my friend said. He said, you got a shaved head, your idea, you go first. And so it was the end of the day, we're sitting around a table and I said, okay, what the heck? I thought about it and I realized, well, it's approved for ultrasound brain imaging. It can't be that bad. Mm -hmm. How many seconds, sorry to interrupt. How many seconds does it take for the imaging? Like a minute? The imaging happens immediately. Okay. So they don't leave prolonged ultrasound on your brain, at least not in humans that they've tested. Well, I, I, I'm not sure anybody used it for brain imaging very much. It was approved, but then CT and MRI came, came by, came around. So I don't know if it was, there wasn't any guidelines. I, you know, I knew what they used in animals and that sort of thing. Anyway. So they called my bluff. My friends call my bluff and uh, sit around the table and I picked it up with my right hand and uh, you put this goo on it because it's got to have gel mm -hmm. and being right-handed and knowing that the temporal bone is the thinnest. I put it right here, turned on the machine, saw what sort of looked like my brain on the, on the screen, mm -hmm. kept it there for about 15 seconds, put it down. And I didn't feel a thing. I said, Oh, well, that's disappointing. But about a minute later, I did start to feel anything, feel something. And I felt kind of a buzz. I was like, really energized and invigorated and felt really good for about an hour. And so I said, you know what, we should try this. So we did the first uh, study in, 19, in 2012. It was actually published in 2013 in chronic pain patients in the journal Brain Stimulation and showed Im improved mood and reduced pain in chronic pain patients with 15 seconds of ultrasound to uh, contralateral to the pain in, uh, in pain, chronic pain patients in a double blind crossover study. You don't feel it, so it's easy to do a double blind study. Now, since then, a number of other people did it, and we, we did a study about a year ago uh, with much better studies, showed improved mood and changing MRI connectivity. So it actually does, does change the connection patterns in the brain. Did you ever try it again? I tried it a couple times, uh, but... Nothing again? Not that you didn't get that one hour of buzz? Yeah, I did, but I didn't, yeah, but... Have you I tried it for creativity? What's that? Have you tried it to increase creativity or productivity? You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to mess with it. It's something I, at work, you know, I, I don't have one at home. It's not something I'm really into to trying, but I think if I had Alzheimer's or, or something like that, I, I damn well try it. Okay. Let me get off on a hypothetical plunge here. Some people suggest that the universe as a whole is conscious. Now I assume you suggest that to some minor degree, proto-consciousness, more like a cacophony than a symphony because you need to cohere it in some manner. Okay. But then consciousness is associated with 40 hertz, 10 hertz? It could be at any frequency. Mm, okay. Well, where I was going with this was you can look at the universe as a whole through um, astrological data and, and cosmological data. And I'm wondering, is there a way of seeing if the universe is vibrating? And then let's imagine it's not vibrating at some level. Then does that mean that as far as we can tell, we are the most conscious parts of the universe? Well, it may be vibrating. The question is whether it's vibrating coherently, you know, or is everything connected? And uh, some people would say, yes, that everything's entangled. You know, going back to the Big Bang, everything's entangled. You're kind of asking me whether, you know, whether there's God out there in terms of this and, uh, I think there might be, but I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to say yes or no for sure. I think there's something like God 
and uh, and it, it could it it has to do with uh, you know platonic values and consciousness out there. But I'd rather leave it vague because otherwise it becomes religion. Okay. Well, then what I was wondering is, let's imagine that we are the most conscious parts of the universe. Now I know that's extreme hubris. Then does that mean that we have a chance at directing the evolution toward the universe being more conscious in the next cycle? If consciousness is somehow directing the evolution of these cycles, and we happen to be the most conscious in this universe, then do we have some hand at that? Uh, this know, is a I, huge speculative I, I jump. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I mean, I did speculate that, or Roger and I did speculate that, you know, these crossovers of eon to eon, but just to get there, you know, you have to have this heat death of the universe, and and I think we would long be long gone, and it would be our consciousness somehow, you know, in the in the Planck scale, in the fine scale structure of the universe, whatever that is. So I don't know. That's that's a tough mm -hmm. one. <laughs> what do you agree with Deepak Chopra on and what do you disagree with him on? I was watching the interview between you and him and I said this on the a most recent interview I did with Bernardo Castro that I'm, I don't disagree necessarily with Deepak. It's not like I agree or disagree because I just reserve judgment. I don't know the ideas enough. But I see him as looking for scientific credibility from people. So when you say something that is in line with what he thinks, he'll ask you to expound and then say well what do you say to people who disagree and say that i espouse woo woo well you're a scientist and you believe something so i see him as fishing for scientific credibility rather than someone who is open to different viewpoints and is challenging his own in the moment but i'm curious what you think of deepak where you agree and where you disagree well he's a friend of mine uh and uh you know i've heard the criticisms and and uh, you know I think he's he's uh, he can be criticized along the lines of what you what you said, but his heart's in a good place and he means well. And uh, let's just leave it at that. He's a friend of mine. When people say that we're all one, and not in just some abstract sense, but in that we share some entity, what do you make of that? Like consciousness is fundamental. Uh, I think we can be one. I think, I think, you know, people can be entangled. I don't, uh, you know, I think ESP and that sort of thing, parapsychology can, can occur by quantum non-locality, but does that mean we are all entangled at any one time? Not necessarily. I think potentially we can be, but, uh, again, I don't want to go too far in that direction. I've already, I've gone out on quite a limb in a lot of areas. Okay. I'll take some questions from the audience. So let's take a look here. Is the depressed person more or less conscious? Well, you could say they're less conscious, but they would require the same amount of anesthesia probably. So I'd say they're probably uh, the same, but just on a negative pole, you know, you can have good news and bad news, but it's all news. But, but on the other hand, I, I do have a graph in one of my papers where we plot the number of tubulins and, you know, uh, uh, versus uh, E sub G and, and uh, so the intensity of the conscious experience would be related to the frequency of the, uh, of the number of orco events you can have. So a plant cell might have, you know, a few per minute and we can, we might have, you know, uh, trillions per second. So yes, w uh, there are levels of consciousness, but within humans, it's, it's kind of hard to say. This being depressed doesn't really necessarily make you less conscious. You certainly feel less conscious, but 
And maybe that's the same thing, but. Would Stuart be interested in seeing raw neural signals in awake primates that show timing supporting his time predictions for network properties? Now, I just read that verbatim. I don't quite understand what's going on, so perhaps you do. It would support what? Okay. Would Stuart be interested in seeing raw neural signals in awake primates that show timing supporting his timing predictions for network properties? If you mean something that shows a response before the stimulus, the backward time effect, yes. And I suspect they're all over neuroscience and they get buried because people don't want to deal with them. Uh, we had a, a talk at one of our conferences and somebody was showing uh, implanted electrodes in, in patients and with responses to different, different uh, faces, you know, the Halle Berry uh, neuron would fire or the Bill Clinton neuron would fire. And it seemed that the, uh, the, uh, the firing, which he was showing on the screen were happening slightly before the picture appeared. And I said, are these synchronized? And he said, yes. I said, so you mean the neuron res responds just before the, before the picture actually appears? He goes, yes. And he said, well, I said, well, how do you explain that? He goes, I can't. And uh, I said, do you think they're backward time effects? He said, I don't know. He wouldn't go, he wouldn't go there. This was Christoph Koch's student at the time. And I invited him to the next year's conference to talk about that. And he showed up and he talked about something different. I said, well, why don't you talk about the backward time effect? And he said, Christoph said it would ruin my career. Really? That would ruin his career? What's, uh, has this been published? No. But there's been a lot of stuff published on backward time. You know, Daryl Bem had, uh, you know, eight, uh, eight experiments and nine experiments, eight of nine, eight out of nine of which showed backward time effects. Okay. Do you mind repeating that person's name this way? I can. Daryl Bem, B-E-M, a psychologist. Oh, back in 2012, something like that. In, in a mainstream psychology journal did uh, nine experiments showing, uh, uh, and eight of them showed, essentially backward time effects. Hmm. See, I'm super, super interested in talking to people who have done studies that demonstrate something that seems like ESP or near-death experiences or paranormal psi events, because unlike most of the physicists, I don't see it as contradicting physics. I see it as perhaps there's, this is indicating new physics right. or the way that consciousness interacts with physics, which to me is right. part of an explanatory framework. Right, and, and Roger's work on this retroactivity now, which could explain this, but he's doing it as a way to get rid of the, uh, well, for a different reason, because of the, uh, to, to, his objective reduction in the tails problem and quantum collapse that I, I don't know that much about. But um, hopefully we'll hear more about that in our next paper, because he said he's working on it. Andreas Cole says, I'm so excited for this. Could you ask him what he thinks about open individualism and what theory of self he personally subscribes to? And then what does orco are say about that said theory of self um hmm. i'm not sure what different theories of self are i have this debate with with betsy my wife all the time because uh she and many people think you need self to have consciousness and i don't think you need a self to have consciousness i think you can just have uh experiences that over time build up memories and the memory is the self so uh, i'm not committed you know, and then Julian James, you know, had this idea that hundreds of thousands of years ago, there was no one you, there was no one Kurt in your head, there was no one Stuart in my head. It was just a bunch of voices. And, uh, 
and you know the gods or the gremlins or whoever and then over over time it consolidated into a self so i don't think you need a, a self to to be conscious i think and of course if you know the whole point of meditation is to lose self so uh i i i don't worry about that too much and uh, mm. i think if you have a se sequence of you know over the course of a lifetime of conscious moments and memory you're going to have a self built up but that doesn't mean it's the self having the consciousness consciousness could just be it's you know occurring by its by itself have you researched much about jung because what you described sounds like what jung described as the individuation process and that is that there are different personalities disparate maybe disjoint that are competing and conflicting it could be uh, i i'm not a i know a little bit about jung and uh uh Betsy studies Jung and my, my good friend, Harold Atman Spocker is big on Jung. Um, but, uh, uh, I don't really know that much about it. Okay. And lastly, Dan Arm says, does he think there may be any basis to the hypothesis that the sun has consciousness? The sun? Yeah. Uh, the only thing I want to say about that is that, uh, Roger once said that neutron stars uh, have giant Bose-Einstein condensates. So they could have moments of collapse and a neutron star might be having conscious moments, but other, other types of stars, I don't know. Stuart, thank you so much, man. <laughs> hey, you're welcome, Kurt. Good talking to you. Good luck to you. You asked great questions. Thanks for your audience and uh, uh, stay in touch.